Blog Talk Radio. Um, such as the University of South Carolina, 
my alma mater, the Citadel, North Carolina State, Ohio U, Elon College, Coastal Carolina. They're working to get some guys from the University of Texas San Antonio, um, but they're going to be the guys that's coaching. Also, there's a few guys that played with me that were coached as well, but the bulk of these guys are, are guys that played for me. And what I believe this does is it gives these kids a vision of success. They get opportunity to, to say, hey, I saw that guy playing in Johnson Haygood down in Charleston, or I saw that guy uh, in Williams Bryce, or I happened to see him on TV um, or because he played professionally or he played in the SEC or it was one of those televised games um, down at Coastal. But they had opportunity to see these guys, and now it's, if they can do it, I can do it. But here's the thing. There's a few of these people that had opportunity to play professionally, but they all went professional in something. We have doctors, we have lawyers, we have businessmen um, through a variety of different types of businesses that are successful, and that's what we want these kids to see. And the beautiful thing is our coaches enjoy it. They love being there. They love interacting with the kids, and it's a win-win situation on both sides. Another thing that we do is we instilled a beyond athletics, sports beyond athletics, or excuse me, success beyond athletics, uh, which is a series of life skills. The main life skill that we, that we talk about is financial literacy because I think that is so important. Regardless if your sport ends at the high school, at the college, if you get opportunity to play professionally, financial literacy is so important. And I think that a lot of people miss the boat and they learn financial literacy through the life of hard knocks. And we prefer to, to go on and, and give them some of those tools. Uh, another thing that we like to hit on is mental wellness, which tonight we will definitely uh, look at mental wellness. And uh, we also talk about character. We talk about leadership, interacting with police officers, which, of course, is extremely important. When we had another young man that got killed a couple of days ago, which I think could have definitely been avoided on both sides, uh, which we'll talk about that a little bit. Um, and then when we get opportunity to, we, we'll definitely get back in front and do some things on etiquette as well. But these are all just some of the life skills that we want to hit on that we believe will help these young people be successful whenever their sport ends. And truth be told, it will help them during uh, that opportunity when they're playing as well. As always, I love going with the thought of the day. And my thought of the day is I have more to lose. You know, one of the things that was tough for me uh, as I was went off to college is that when I went home, there was some people that I couldn't hang out with anymore because I had more to lose than they did. Uh, unfortunately, at times you have friends that are doing things that you know they shouldn't be doing, but you know if you get caught with them, you're, you it's guilt by association, which unfortunately I had one of my teammates that was sitting in a car, and his friends went inside, robbed a store, and he went to jail as well. So you've got to go on and just say it at times. I have to separate myself from people when they're doing stuff that I know they're not supposed to be doing. Or if you know that they're doing something and they might get caught with it, then, you know, hey, I have a, a, a friend of mine, a, a good friend of mine, that when we go out, we got to meet at the restaurant because I don't want him in my car. Um, and it's not to be mean, but just I know that at times he's doing some things that he shouldn't be doing, 
And if we get pulled over and we get caught, then that's me. So you have to be smart. Um, and regardless if that's from an athletic standpoint or even when you get out of school and, and you're a successful business person, you've got to be smart. Um, now, I'm not saying you don't hang with people, but at the same time, I've got to be smart because you've got to remember you've got more to lose. And some people don't go with that mindset that, hey, if I get in trouble, I get in trouble. Nah, buddy, you get in trouble now, that's a life-altering event. And when you have a family involved, um, you have kids, man, that's something that you don't even want to think about. But uh, but tonight, uh, as my co-host, I have a good friend of mine um, who was my quarterback in college, a um, guy I like to beat up on on the golf course, uh, Mr. Jack Douglas. Jack, what's going on? I'm doing great, Everett. How are you tonight? I'm doing well, man. How's life in Nebraska? Yeah, I'm a new Nebraska citizen, moved out here in October. And um, I'm going to tell you what, Nebraska people are solid, nice, salt-of-the-earth people, hardworking people, and uh, it's, a, it's a good change. I've lived my first 50 years in South Carolina between Charleston and Columbia and uh, got the opportunity, and me and the wife looked, and we said, hey, let's, let's make the move. Let's see how it is in, in Lincoln, Nebraska. Good for you. Plus, it was a promotion yeah. for you, so that's a good thing. Yes, good thing. absolutely. Nothing. I didn't move out here for nothing. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm, I'm going to tell you what. Uh, you, you live in Columbia, and I, I lived past, uh, man, it's been a long time, since 1993 in Columbia. And you can appreciate a hometown fan base, which University of South Carolina Love their Gamecocks. Absolutely love their Gamecocks. Right. That that love, you have to multiply it by about two or three, and you have the feeling of people in Lincoln, Nebraska. They positively, absolutely, no doubt, love their Huskers. No doubt. They ride and die with the Huskers, no matter what. And, and you know, it, it's been it's been a tough past past few seasons for them, but – they ride and die with the Huskers. Well, so it, it'll be kind of like if Clemson wasn't here and it was just the University of South Carolina. Exactly. Yeah. That's exactly what it is. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And, and, then, and then you only you only have, let's say hypothetically in South Carolina, you only had Charleston and Columbia and everything else were cornfields. That's what Nebraska's <laughs> like. Omaha and Lincoln, and the rest of the state's cornfields, literally. That's uh, uh, that's pretty interesting. It's pretty interesting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it, it's cool. Yeah. It, it, it's it's a really good place. It, it, truth of the matter is, Lincoln has a lot of similarities with Columbia. It's a university town. It's a state capital. Um, lots of technology come out of the university. Um, because of the, the engineering and the science programs at the university. Um, and, and what I'm here for is it, it's kind of a kind of insurance hub here in Lincoln. There are about three or four insurance companies based here. Similarly, in Columbia, you have Blue Cross Blue Shield in Columbia, Colonial based there, Aflac Group based there. So it's um, a lot of similarities between the cities, a ton of similarities. Now, does does Coach Osborne truly run the the university in Nebraska? Yeah, yeah. Nothing happens unless he gives his uh, approval. 
from what I'm hearing from everybody I talk to. As soon as he cools on Scott Frost, that'll be Scott Frost's last day uh, as head coach. Um, he's still saying, hey, Scott, Scott's a good coach. He's going to turn it around. So nobody's even nobody says anything about Scott Frost as long as Tom Osborne is still talking positive. Yep. Now he played for that's, that's, that's what's that? Played for Coach Osborne, didn't he? I I I I think he did. I do believe Osborne was still the coach when when Scott Frost quarterback and was was uh, Tyson Trophy winner. I think. Um. And I believe there are only a couple of retired jerseys, Scott Frost, Mike Rozier. I think to get your jersey retired at Nebraska, you have to win the Heisman or or, or the Outland. Uh, maybe Dave Remington's jersey's retired. Uh, I can't say that for sure, but they they don't just retire jerseys there because you, you played a couple of good seasons. Yeah, because they've had a lot of good football players come through the room. Nebraska yeah, absolute, yeah, absolute ton, absolute ton. Yeah, but they—they are—they're um, having some lean seasons right now. But uh, I did get a chance to go to the game, their first home game during COVID. If you recall, the Big Ten had a late start because they—they uh, they decided not to play football. And then when they saw the the number of eyeballs on the SEC and ACC actually playing football, they jumped into it a little bit later. So, um, and of course, the stadium was not open to fans, but our mutual teammate, Charles Wallace, his son mm-hmm. made his first start at right tackle for Penn State Nittany Lions and visited the um, – the, the Nebraska Cornhuskers, um, and when I saw that about to happen, I called called Charles. I said, hey, you coming to Lincoln? He's like, yeah. I said, you got a ticket for me? He said, yeah, you can be my date. You can be my, my wife for the game. So, so I, I enjoyed a game that featured probably 250 fans, arguably the smallest crowd in uh in a stadium that that boasts the longest sellout record in, in the in the college football nation, um, there were not many fans in that stadium, but it, it was it was a good game. It was a very good game. Um, uh, Penn State uh, did not; they were not successful, but um, it was a it was a super game. Sometimes Penn, Penn State took them a while to get going this year. So, but, but hey, they did. They, they did. did. But they, they they turned it around toward the end of the season. They did. They did. They did. They did. The um, now um, one of the things of of course from a just going back to the thought of the day. Now, have you had any experience like you had more to lose, and so you had to separate yourself from some people, or or what is your take on that thought? <laughs> you know. <laughs> I was laughing. I was I was thinking to myself, I'm not so sure I've ever been in the car with Everett. Am I that friend he's talking about? Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, you have to you have to really really uh, think about those things. But but you've been in my car, but I'm not so sure I've been in your car. I don't know. I don't know. Um, <laughs> You prefer to drive your car because your car is nicer than mine. <laughs> okay. 
Yeah, and, and you know, I I think I've done a a pretty good job staring clear of of really um, risky situations. And, and you hit it on the nail. Once you get married, have a family, your actions are are affecting a lot more people than than just yourself. And you have to really be careful. Um, not to say that you can't have your your old friends, but you have to um really really be careful what where and when you do things with them um and and protect yourself and you're protecting your kids and your family name and your wife's honor and and those type things so um i've like i said i i i'm very particular of the people i i do hang out with um and i've never had to necessarily remove myself from a situation simply because um for for the folks I, I spend spend time with tends to be people I really, really trust um with uh with my company and, and me with their company. Uh, something that you, some some kids don't think about and they need to. And uh, Yeah. 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 Um in and you know, you you probably as a teenager gotten to, to situations where you you've learned along the way and that's that's what your teenage years are for to to learn those lessons and you, you have to sometimes learn the hard way and hopefully that hard way is not a a serious situation but just serious enough to get your attention and I, I've been through you know a couple of those things as a teenager where where you start you start you know building your fences of, of where you need to be with whom and and in what situations, and you start start making those understandings. Right, right. And one just to sort of as we're talking about making good decisions. Um, of course, there was another incident that that occurred in in uh, Wisconsin, um, where another young man got shot. Now, on one hand. You know, I think that it, it shouldn't have happened. There's no doubt it shouldn't have happened. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, it's just do what you're supposed to do, and you have a better chance of something like that not happening. Whereas he's trying to get away, um, but I don't know all the details, but it's kind of, dude, just just do what you're supposed to do. Um, and I again, haven't there's seen that. Yeah, I haven't seen that footage. Um, uh, are you saying Wisconsin, or, or I knew there was a shooting in in Minneapolis again? Which yeah, were there two recently? I heard Minneapolis. I apologize. I, I was okay. On that. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I hadn't seen that footage yet. However, I did look at the video of the the gentleman who who's an army officer in Virginia. Um, and I'm gonna tell you when, when you say do what you're supposed to do. I think he did. He did what I have instructed my sons to do: stop in a well-lit area, make sure they see exactly. your hands, look them in the eyes, and speak in a measured, careful, clear, loud tone. Look directly at yep. them, and really do what they're they're asking. Now, as the story came out, the the officer, the chubby officer, um, Mr. Rod the Lightning. Um, has been relieved of his duties, 
And, you know, I, I really don't understand what, what, the, what the antagonism was about once you see a gentleman who, who's an officer in the U.S. Army. You, you ask those questions. You, he's, got, he's showing you his hands. You, explain, you, you have to thoroughly explain to him. He, he's trained in combat. He's trained to, to handle situations like that. And you get up on him and shoot tear gas directly into his face, uh, that, 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 was, that was a bit excessive, a bit excessive, a bit ridiculous. Yes, it was, it was. But, but the, and I'm going to say, the difference is he's still here. It wasn't yeah. right. Yeah. Um, whereas from what I understand with the other young man, he was trying to get away. And okay. the officer said she thought it was her taser and it was her service revolver and shot him. Right. But now, if you don't try to get away. Yeah, if you don't try to get away, that doesn't happen. However. Uh, and I was, I, I'm not saying it's right. <laughs> I've never. I, when reaching for my handgun, I've never grabbed my comb. And thought it was my handgun. I mean, it, you just you know where your handgun is. I mean, yes, yes, yes. exactly. And that's and her I job mean, to know where her handgun is and know where her taser is. That that's not no not an excuse at all. That's her job, and I'm certain they feel different. A taser can't be as heavy as a handgun. I I I, I not a loaded handgun, not a forty. I think they typically carry forty caliber. I mean, that's not a small gun. It's uh, it's it's interesting. It's interesting. Now on on the sports side, um, I'm gonna ask your opinion. We got the draft yeah. coming up here shortly. Trevor mm-hmm. Lawrence is expected to be the first first pick. Who do you think yep. will be the second quarterback? That's a very good question. Now I'm going to preface this by saying I am a Clemson fan. After my Citadel Bulldogs, I pulled for the Clemson Tigers. Then I pulled for USC Gamecocks. And now I pulled for the um, the Nebraska Cornhuskers. I'm a Clemson fan. In the playoff game, I watched every single play of that game. Right. Trevor Lawrence's body of work is excellent. But, man... Justin Fields made a, made me a fan out of him. He showed grittiness, poise, accuracy, toughness, leadership, more grittiness, more leadership, more toughness. And and apparently he has like made the highest score on not the Wonderlic, but there's another test, some sort of memory test. Apparently he has like photographic memory or something. Um mm. I'm going to tell you, it's going to be hard not to pick Justin Fields. I, I would say this, this could possibly come down to the Mahomes situation where you have one quarterback who was not picked first, who is, man, just, just really, really playing well. And we won't know for three more years who the, exactly. the best pick will be. But, boy, I don't know if you can – walk past Justin Fields. 
I don't know if you could you could justify picking someone. I think I think he he outplayed Trevor that day. Trevor Trevor kind of caved toward the end of the game yeah. in that playoff yeah. game. And Trevor Trevor's you know they say the sophomore jinx, um, but I, I think he probably played his best football this freshman year. Um, yeah, he he played yeah. well this year also, but yeah, and, and he has all uh, the, all the tools, all the tools. yeah yeah. I mean, even in the quote unquote bigger because he had bigger games then. Because again, every game this year was ACC games. Um, he had yeah. more big games, and I thought he played better in those games. Um, yeah, yeah. And I know he, he missed. You know the the early one versus versus Notre Dame, um, and I right, thought right. that with back in the mix proved that him being there is definitely a difference. Um, hey, there is but, yeah, but absolutely, absolutely. He set the ball really, really high his freshman year, and I don't know if he exceeded that ball. Um, yeah, he, he did. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of truth to that. Yeah, and but but to that. answer your question. Uh, I think the second quarterback pick has to be Justin Fields, or I, I'm, I'm really wondering what what the other other franchise if they if they pick who's Alabama's quarterback is it Mac Jones is that his name? Yep, yeah, Mac Jones. Yep. Mm-hmm. Well, he and, has he had a um, he has the highest uh, completion percentage in NCAA history. But he is throwing. He is throwing. He was throwing to the. What what would have been the Heisman Trophy winner, and then the eventual Heisman Trophy winner? I think I could have done almost as well as Mac Jones. All right, so now, and you know I can't hit the broad. You know I can't hit the broad side of a barn. Later, later today, we got one year receiver, so I'm gonna be like both. Jack said, <laughs> <laughs> if you was a better receiver. You would have had better throwing numbers. What do you say to that? No, I did not say that. I did not say that. I said Mac Jones was working with some special, special talent, very special talent, and that that hey, that makes a difference. Not just in, not just in the receiver core, but the running back too. So I mean, he had a lot and, of weapons. Yeah, and, and so that that makes. You know, granted, he is better than I think um, outside of uh, Tua, most Alabama quarterbacks that have come through. Uh, in the past, Alabama quarterbacks basically hand the ball off through, yeah, you know, 15 passes a game. And, and their job was not to turn the ball over. But um, but he's he's more dynamic than the old Alabama quarterback. I agree. But I don't know if he should be picked ahead of Justin Fields. Right. Right, I agree with that. I agree. I agree. But hey, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back in the future. Hold on. Here it is, the groove slightly trans. Just a bit of a break from the norm 
just a little something to break the monotony of all that hardcore dance that has gotten to be a little bit out of control. It's cool to dance, but what about a groove that soothes the move romance? Give me a soft, subtle mix, and if it ain't broke, then don't try to fix it. And think of the summers of the past, adjust the face and let the alpine blast. Pop in my CD and let me run around and put your car on cruise and lay back cause it's summertime. Summertime. Wonderful, man. Um, you know, 
you know, it's 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 a, it's, <laughs> it's one of the things like we said, it's still the road that travels. Uh, you know, started out, um, grew up in Georgetown, South Carolina, went to Chalky High School, um, ended up being blessed. I played better at all the sports and ended up playing one year of high school football and ended up getting a full scholarship to the school. And, you know, used that blessing and, uh, you know, learned to how to play the game, pretty much technique, technique sound, um, just just coming in raw, raw knowledge. But I had a chance to play there four years and, a degree in business administration, um, left the Citadel and definitely got into the private sector, uh, got into retail um, pretty much and uh, really went to own and really learned the, how the method of how to move furniture and refurbish furniture. So that journey kind of took me into um, just a, a growth aspect in management. So by the time I transitioned and came to uh, Fayetteville, North Carolina, Ended up getting into um, mental health and worked that for some years. And when that kind of shifted, kind of got back into retail and became a store manager at CVS Pharmacy and managed that location and kind of transitioned to a couple, two, um, some stores. But at the same time, um, we started a business back in 2010 um, as a resource in the location we have now in Fayetteville, which is the home of Fort Bragg, um, the 82nd Airborne paratroopers, uh, they're always transitioning. So with that being said, it was always an opportunity being offered um, of them needing help, either unloading a truck or loading a truck. So with my background in rent to own and learning how to move furniture on, like, deliveries and maybe, you know, some repossession of uh, someone was able to pay the bill. Um, that gave certain techniques that I was able to utilize in starting that actual um, hobby at that time. So um, when the behaviors of like, good customer service just kept, you know, getting positive feedback from customers, it led to, you know, uh, a technique system that we learned from, you know, working in a corporate tin company on how to utilize those reviews on getting a foot traffic. Um, and once we was able to establish a good quality system of customer service along with work ethic and living by uh, the name that we, we have is called S&Q Movers, which stands for Speed and Quality Movers. Um, and we just try our best to um, utilize those fundamentals on, you know, um, working in this community which you know these soldiers and the community just all constantly need help with transitioning in this area right right well cool the um now i'm i'm going to go back because i didn't realize that you work in mental health um now what were you mm-hmm. doing exactly in mental health Perfect. yeah um when i got into mental health it was kind of a transition um time period when I was in working the bank. So I started out really in the ground level as just a paraprofessional. And that position just was where you worked with an individual. This setting was a group home where we, you know, interact and we monitor them and uh, make sure we, you know, uh, use their person-centered plan to help them not, you know, hurt themselves or 
you know, um, utilize, they have triggers so they hurt them, um, not do things that they can't, uh, shouldn't be doing, and just monitoring them throughout the day to make sure their safety. But then that transitioned into with, you know, my background and um, well, having a degree, I was able to just lateral use that experience and then move up within the mental health ranks. And then I became a qualified professional, which then I started writing the PCPs plans for um, um, access one diagnosis and making sure that they got the perfect, perfect treatment based on certain uh, hours that was given from the state to uh, use um, helpers to get them, you know, on track either with that plan or, you know, get them facilitated some type of um, uh, professional care. Well, the, um, one of the things that we were actually going to spend some time uh, in later tonight uh, is just talking about mental, mental wellness uh, and just your opinion. Why do you think, and it's, it's definitely a issue in athletics, but it's not one that's really been in the forefront. Why do you think mental health, mental wellness has not been in the forefront of athletics? Um, I feel that it's not something that's in the forefront of our community. Um, I think if mental health was something that was taken more seriously when uh, individuals are in high school or adolescent um, stages of life, that their opportunity for resources are be more uh, sustainable in their adulthood and as they're in positions in where they're taking on a lot of uh, stressors, they'll be able to have the ability to communicate these triggers or communicate the ability to have resources that can help them throughout certain um, periods of those triggers. So I, I feel that it starts earlier, but then needs more leveraging by the time you get into those adult periods. I guess it's, you got to let people know it's okay to know, let other people know that you're not okay. Exactly. Exactly. The ability to communicate. I think that's the, 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 heart, the, the, the heart of it. Just knowing that it's safe to communicate, or maybe having a safe zone of of, of, of natural supports that you can uh, feel comfortable to communicate. I think those are more of the uh, loopholes in our personal, in our, you know, maybe our. Uh, I think, and from an athlete standpoint, just speaking from an athlete standpoint, I got a lot of my um, security in the locker room. Believe it or not. Um, but it's still hard, I guess, to even communicate a lot of your things you may deal with through depression, through anxiety, that it's kind of hard to, you know, communicate to those that you may feel that you don't not, don't, may not understand, even if it is somebody who's stood up right beside you. Yeah. Oh, hey, Omar, this is Jack Douglas. Hope, hope you're doing well. Um, you know, it, it's a tough it's a tough transition from the world we came from. You you grew up right up the highway, up 17 from me. Uh, I grew up in North Charleston. Um, when, when you know you grow up as as a as a black boy, becoming a black man, where it's not necessarily a a welcome thing to express your feelings to your friends, maybe to your mom, but nobody else. 
and then you go to a place like the Citadel where you're not expected to feel anything, and you play <laughs> football where you're rewarded for being tough and stoic. And, you know, how do you transition? How do you effectively transition from that mindset when you're 22 years old and, and walk, walk, you know, walk away from uh, 171 Moultrie Street into what's now the real world where you're expected to, to have feelings and, and show compassion and, and things like that? How, how does that transition take place? It, it, it doesn't sound like an easy transition at all. It's not, and it's still my reality. Um, yeah. You know, I tell people all the time, the the, the, the thing that I got, I, I always tell even when we talk amongst, you know, classmates and those that went there who went this damn goal, you just know that you went through a process. Um, right. And right. unfortunately, right. that process will give you an edge. Um, mm-hmm. And... Yep. Those that didn't take part in the fourth class system of any sort really won't understand it. It's something that it allows you to handle pressure in a way that I think no other system, I mean, no other school in a way could really kind of put on a young youngster at eight, between eighteen and twenty-two years old, and then by the time you get in the real world. Now you're dealing with other variables of life that now you got to balance it, and it, it kind of will send you in, in some type of depression if you don't know how to uh, absorb it the right way. Yeah, um, yeah, and, and I think there is a transition when you walk out of those gates uh, because if yeah. you treat everything like the core cadets, you you'll get fired from a regular job. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Number one for the language that you're going to use. Um, yeah. You know, <laughs> so I don't think we address that transition very well as a as a, other, as a as a school. The other transition that a lot of people have to deal with is also from playing being an athlete to no longer being an athlete. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. The kids that yeah. hey, I'm I'm a football player. And my name is Everett Sands instead of. I'm Everett Sands, and I play football. Mm-hmm. And I mm-hmm. think that's another uh, transition that needs to be addressed more often than it is right now. I have a personal story on that. Um, the transition for me, but it was... Hello? Wait, I'm sorry. Hey, yep, yeah, yeah. Oh, yep. Okay. Yeah, well, the transition for me was... Um, was where um, health, diabetes, played a factor. From where my physical, you know, being an athlete didn't continue the regimen of, of 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 working out, and the lifestyle of you know just eating just kept like maintained, and I became I, I became, I became um, diabetic um, in in my early twenties. So I was wow. battling that post-football. Uh, and mm-hmm. now in my 40s, I just now became more uh, actually to a, to a program that helped me now. Um, pretty much now I'm, I'm running that. I'm about to be off my diabetes medicine. 
So good. Uh, good. But I came but I came but I definitely came from our first country to have having that tough mindset that that just that edge. Just you know, if you want to achieve it, you have to. Is any means necessary? Right. Right. Yep. Um, fu- funny you mentioned that because when I when I first graduated, I, I knew I had to change the way I was eating because as an athlete, when you're in season, it's not that you're eating junk, but you're eating volumes of food, massive uh, volumes. And I don't I don't think people fully appreciate how many calories you have to take in. To, to keep your body going, you know, four or five practices a week and a three-hour game on a Saturday. Right. That's, you know, on, on, during that Saturday morning, we, we should have been consuming 3,000 calories uh, to get, get ourselves geared up for a game physically, and we did. And, and unless you change that eating, um, you're, you're going to be in trouble. I was lucky enough that I did change it and – I got into distance running. I, I did a lot of running. Um, and then my, my oldest brother, class of 82, he has been on a vegetable diet. He's been a vegetarian for the better part of 20 years. Cleared up his asthma, cleared up arthritic-type uh, uh, type symptoms. Um, because, you know, meat and things like that sometimes have additives. And when you can decrease that swelling of your body, you're leading a healthier life. Um, I was vegetarian for a few years. Um, my wife cooked bacon one morning, and then I fell off the wagon. But I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. That's not what, that's not what got me off the wagon. But, but I, I am careful. I, I don't eat a ton of meat. I'll, I'll, you know, I'll go a day or two without any meat and then maybe have a serving of meat next few days or something. But, um yeah, we we really have to watch what we're what we're consuming. And sounds like you're yeah you're ten years younger than me, so you're forty. I'm fifty, and Everett's right there behind me. And if you think you got to watch what you eat when you're forty, wait till you turn fifty, buddy. It's wow. It, it's different. Yeah, it's different. Yep. Now speaking of the Citadel, Omar, what did you learn? Or what have you taken from playing at the Citadel or learn, or just the Citadel experience that you've been able to apply to your business life? Sort of absorb frustration. Knowing when to – knowing how to pick your battles. Mm-hmm. Because when, in the, in, when you're dealing in customer service and you're dealing with public – Customer, they're saying customers always right. Do plays a good part in business, but the reality is is that the integrity of the actual contract is what needs to be addressed. But we have to leverage the empathy on the stressors of making sure this transaction, this contract, is dealt in with in a high standard. So it's a constant battle a lot of times when you're in people's environment in the moving industry because you're now in their living space. You're in their customs. You're in their way of living. So dealing with that, knowing how to absorb frustration when it comes at you, maybe a tornado way like like I experienced, you don't know how it is when you're a freshman and 
you have someone kicking your door <laughs> and coming in your room in the middle of the night. <laughs> so, you know, with that experience, it allows you to, you know, not be as quick to be on the defensive side of the bridge. It gives you a chance to kind of be more in the matrix with it. You can kind of see it coming, but yet the same token have the ability to communicate and facilitate the way you want to communicate or absorb whatever they're trying to um, communicate to you. So that's where uh, I feel that the strength of being there and the leadership that's instilled in the system or instilled the school is definitely something that uh, I could say uh, – and there's so many things, to be honest with you, man. I can't really just really give a couple. with so many different uh, examples I can give from even football. Um, it was just so much um, structure, I could say, that allows me to continue getting out in my daily practice. Mm-hmm. Some of these things now. Um, here's, here's one thing I truly believe, that most guys – don't really appreciate what they're going through at the Citadel when they're going through it. And it takes about five years after they graduate to start realizing it and fall back in love with the Citadel. I agree. Yeah, maybe 10. I can agree. I can call sound on that. Yes, sir. Yeah, might, yep. might, might, take a couple, might take a couple more years after after five. Um, yeah, yeah. might. <laughs> <laughs> because, because you know, ever ever when when we had our reunions, you really don't right. see the bigger crowds until you get to ten or fifteen year reunions. Um, right. Either guys can't or won't come back to the five years, sometimes the ten years. That's true. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's true. But I think, yeah, even though they don't come, I think it's probably around somewhere between that five and ten years that they realize what they went through. Helps right, them. right. And, and for some of them, maybe, yeah. even though it's, they don't admit it until later. So, but now, um, Omar, how has the pandemic affected you and your business? The pandemic was, a, in, the, in, the, in the initial hit of it, March and April was a big hit because it was mm-hmm. no movement. Um, and then there was no knowledge of how, how to even move around. I think by the time the military, which is 85% of my clientele base, is active or non-active, the pandemic shut the military down from any movement up until that May. Um, What kept us um, with the ability to still um, make ends meet and and grow, because we did end up still growing 6% last year, and it was due to that we were still considered essential workers. Mm-hmm. So we were still we were still working through the pandemic. Nice, nice. Okay. Now, did you have to make any adjustments? Yes. Um, I think the biggest adjustment was the pe- just the, just the um, safety, just the the temperature checks daily, the uh, mask mandatory mask, um, making sure customers, um, you know. We do a walkthrough with one more customer. Then after a customer, do a walkthrough with a customer. Then um, we ask them if, you know, they're not in the home per se until we ask questions. But customers definitely know the, the procedures now. And, just, you know, they just um, 
follow compliance to just those safety measures. Um, and everything goes pretty smooth. Uh, other than when you have uh, pets. Now, pets is something that <laughs> just to go get in the way regardless. But uh, overall, um, now, we the pandemic, to be honest, um, in our industry, uh, we didn't really see too much of a, of, a, of a shift just for those first two months, April and um, May. No, yeah, March and April. Mm-hmm. Uh, any of these adjustments you'll keep once we open back up, or um, you think you just go back to it? Um, I definitely, I think, um, you know, I think the appreciation of asking the customer, you know, what the customer is safe with, I think, you know, uh, us as a whole, we probably still keep it. And I'm still kind of seeing how the summer get here, you know, the midway, trying to see better ways that we can kind of leverage those masks without, you know, suffocating. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> other than that, I, I think we're going to definitely still uh, use a lot of the safety measures that is still in place. Good, 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 good. Have, have you and your employees had had your shots yet, or I'm I'm assuming do you have employees or are they contracted? Oh no, we have employees. Um, and guess okay. funny you said that because um, I'm scheduled to get mine next week. I got lead, I got lead by example, so I'm going to get mine next yeah. week. And um, then I think once I I think once I go and get I go and get mine, I think my my team will feel more comfortable while getting there. Right. Right. Yep, you're absolutely right. You have to lead by example. Yep, just don't get the J and J. No, I was going to try to get the Madonna. <laughs> I'm not sure if you heard, but yeah. they put a pause. They put a pause on the J and J. Um, you know, really because there's some women and gotten some blood clots uh, or something along that line, so they sort of put in the pause to do some more research. Now, the good thing is there's over a million J&J shots and only six people have have had some issues, so that's an extremely small number. But uh, I'm glad that they're being safe um, and, and just recalling it for right now and trying to figure it out. And that's where a lot of my experience coming at. Um, I used to be an AIDS, uh, AIDS HIV case manager in nebulizing okay. infectious disease realm. And you know, coronavirus, the coronavirus is affecting disease. So you know, understanding you know a lot of what, dude, it's a similar um, type of you know uh, situation when you do affecting disease. Every 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 disease is different in nature, but the, you know the common effect of how it spreads and transmitted is pretty similar in nature. Um, but uh, it's one of those things that just having some knowledge and knowing of the mutation aspect of it is something, um, the resistance of certain things give you a little bit of knowledge of it. So I am hopeful about it, so definitely. You did good. Well, all right, well, as we get ready to come to a close, one final question. Um, what advice would you give to our listeners, um, really gearing towards that our, our youth, that have aspirations to play at the collegiate level? The biggest thing I'm, I'll definitely say is don't give up and don't allow, you know, uh, setbacks or any type of 
obstacle get in your way. You know, if there's something you definitely want, because the education that comes from just being a student athlete is just more than a degree. It's a uh, it's it's a, the networking, it's the actual uh, work ethic that you gain from it. You know, just just the overall experience. So, if anyone who definitely is a student athlete looking to go to school and playing sports, I definitely you know su- suggest and promote that. Good, good. Now you said you have sure. uh, seven one time, sir. I lost you, Everett. Yeah, we lost you for a second. You got the eighteen year old, right? Yes. Play sports? No, no, no. None of the kids play sports. Ironically, none of them play sports. They just, you know, they they had other aspirations. My son did play briefly basketball, um, but they just didn't really um, get to the sports. Hmm. That's interesting. My oldest didn't really play sports either. Just, yeah. Really? Just, just didn't, yeah. Yep, yep. And both me and my wife are devout athletes. Devout athletes. Let's <laughs> <So. laughs> say I watch my sports center. <laughs> Omar, we definitely appreciate it, man. Good luck to you in the future. And uh, we well, yes, definitely want to. Thank you, definitely. One thing to keep in mind, June the 26th, we're going to have a camp, uh, our camp for our kids, um, and try to get as many guys that play for me down there as we can to come coach. We can get you down with those defensive linemen. So uh, get a chance, oh, put that on your definitely. schedule. June 26th? Yes, sir, definitely, definitely. Wait, once again, thank you all for having me. Hey, thank you, Omar. Great, great yeah. to meet you. Great to meet you. Yep. Everybody, hold on a second, and we'll be back in a few. Today, more than ever, we think about the air our family breathes. You and your family need to count on your home's air to be clean, free from harmful bacteria, and safe from the coronavirus. Nano air filters are the defense system your home HVAC system needs. Our filter media is created with a super fine spider-like material, which captures particles as small as the virus. Standard home filters are just far too porous to do the job. So make the healthy choice and upgrade your air filters today by visiting nanoairsolutions.com.
I had never seen Damon Boatwright on the field during an offensive play that whole season up until that point. So here he comes in the middle of a drive against South University of South Carolina, a key drive in the game. He's jogging in here, and he tells me right, like he said, right 47. And, I, and he's about to go out because receiver tells the quarterback to play, then runs to their position. And I grab him. I say, you mean right 37? Because 37 <laughs> was our triple option play. He goes, yep. no, 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 Seth. And so he, he tries to leave, and I grab him by his jersey again. And, and at, at that point, I'm looking at the sideline. And, again, you're like, like Damon said, the clock is winding down. I just say, you better catch this ball. And just shoved him, shoved him out to his position. And he caught it. He put a move on that defensive back who I thought spent some time in the NFL, delivered, delivered yeah. a ball on the money, and he hauled it in. Yeah. Very well-executed play. It lulled them to sleep because they'd never seen him on film because he wasn't on film. I don't even know he, if he practiced. Did you practice with us up till that point? <laughs> now, 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 Mr. Sands, Mr. Sands, let me, let me also edit one more thing now. Now, Mr. Okay. Douglas likes when he tells a story to tell people he threw the ball on the money. Now, we, we know that would have been an exception to the rule of the normal Jack Douglas long pass. I mean, it was a little duckish, to be honest with you, but it's a good thing I went to a place called Goose Creek High School because I was used to that kind of duck kind of pass. So I was able to bring it in successfully and make both Jack look good as well as the offense that day. But I will say, you, you made a good move on your break, and you turned the defensive back around, and you were actually pretty daggum wide open. I mean, it was That's true. You, you were you made separation, and you ran a very good route. So it was, it was a great job, great job. Yeah. I still don't understand why the coaches sent you in for that play. I just don't understand <laughs> that one. <laughs> and I don't like to admit this, but Jack is right. I did have a good 10 feet of separation, which that D1 cornerback was able to make up very quickly and haul me down as soon as I caught the, the pass. Remember, the ball was ducking, so it gave him some time to run you down. <laughs> <laughs> if it was a ball on the money, you'd be dancing in the end zone, right? That would I mean, have been my so first that, touchdown. That would be my first touchdown. Yes. Yes. <laughs> the judge said earlier, if he had the uh, receivers that Alabama had this year, that his completion percentage would have been a lot higher. So what do you no, think about that? no. No, no, you're you're, min- you're you're mixing up words. I said I could have had the numbers Mac Jones had with his set of receivers, meaning he had a Heisman Trophy winner, and then a guy who should have won the Heisman on on his in his his thing. I'm not saying anything about my group. Without it was a thing that Mac Jones. Your numbers would have been higher, right? Right, Bo? That's what he's saying, right? Yeah, I don't know now. He kind of waffling a little bit. He kind of waffling a little <laughs> bit on that statement. <laughs> well, if we threw more than eight or nine passes a game, yeah, they could have been that is higher true. <laughs> with anybody catching the ball. <laughs> oh, man. Well, hey, Bo, Bo, tell us, 
about 1990, but tell us about your journey um, after you left the Citadel and, and, and your career path. Yeah, and, and Everett, if you don't mind, let me just say that because I do have you and Jack here, and we don't get to talk often enough. I want to say this, and I will talk about my journey, but that was a very special team. I got to be I mean, I think back now, and I even tell these stories, even tell it to my, my kids. Um, I think the first two years, actually, 90 and 91, those were very sort of special years um, mm-hmm. for me because I was able to meet guys, and I'm not just saying this because it's you. I mean, I, I was able to meet guys like you um, and Jack and Garen and Cornell and Terrence um, and a number of people, I mean, on the team. Um, and it just the bond, I think, that we, we, we made, and we were a motley crew at best, um, and many people came from different parts um, of the South primarily, but different parts of the uh, country. Um, and we got a lot of the talents that God has given to us, and it was through hard work and trusting each other um, and, and having a good leader, and I, having a good leader in Jack under the helm. So um, I, I think back, and I think my life would have been different, to be honest with you, had I not sort of gone through um, a lot of those things with the fellas um, that I went through at the time in a place uh, like the Citadel. And that really did help me then in my career. So, I mean, answer your story about the rest of the journey. I mean, at that point, when I left school, um, I figured both on the field and off the field, just through the military college environment, that I have pretty much faced, you know, the most difficult set of challenges that I was going to face in life. Um, and I was ready. I was ready for the next part of that journey um, of my professional career. And it was a citadel alum 68 so i graduated in 64 i'm sorry i graduated in 94 i had a i had a citadel alum who graduated in 68 named frank demarco um who met me um in on the streets of south carolina one day coming out of church and he asked me what i was doing with my my life my career um and convinced me to go into the healthcare industry the healthcare industry. I mean, at that point, I was trying to get into law school, and he goes, there are too many lawyers in the world and not enough good <laughs> administrators. And he goes, if you go back to graduate school instead of law school, he goes, I'll make sure you find your first job in healthcare. Um, so now, Everett, Jack knows exactly what I'm talking about when I say this, but when you from the low country, like we're from, yeah. you know when you got a good opportunity looking at you, and you better take advantage of it. Exactly. And so exactly. when I had this guy who said he was going to sponsor me and be a mentor, um, then I said, this is the path that I'm going to go down. So I ended up going back to graduate school uh, at the Medical University of South Carolina a wonderful school, by the way, a wonderful graduate school, a great learning environment that was very supportive of, of me during my time. Um, and I was able to graduate uh, with a master's in health administration and a master's in health sciences. And then I started working for a great company under the direction of Frank DeMarco, as I just mentioned, who was my mentor mm-hmm. at the time, a Citadel alum. Um, and then I just started working in different hospitals. I just started working. I worked mm-hmm. at, and I worked. I worked at 
um, one department, sort of one manager, one shift, uh, and then started working my way up uh, in the organization mm-hmm. where I kept getting more and more uh, responsibility along the way. So, uh, and now, you know, I moved around the Midwest. I moved throughout the South in the Midwest, and now it's my um, my latest opportunity that I have to move to Springfield, Illinois, land of Lincoln, uh, where I'm going to be a system uh, CEO over another healthcare system here soon. Congratulations. Congratulations. That's going to start in June? June. June 1st um, is when it's going to start. So uh, wish me luck. Wish me luck. And uh, uh, hopefully I can uh, help uh, that organization um, with uh, the challenges that they're uh, facing and any opportunities that they have to be successful. So so you've taken over uh, as your current role is, President also with yep. with your organization, yeah. Yeah. And, and so, so you're taking over. What, what what are the things that when you take over in a role like that, say the first ninety days, what do you have to do to get in to make a difference to um, to get things done? Yep. So the difference now, Jack. So the first the job I currently have, um, I was called a regional president, and so it's part of a system that has. Four, it's in four different states, and I was a regional president over one state um, of their four. Now I'm going to a system that has hospitals in two states, but I'm the system CEO over all of it now. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, and, okay. I have a, and I have my own board um, that yeah. uh, I'll be working with directly. So the, the first 90 days, uh, to be honest with you, um, I am going to go in and – First, not try to mess too many things up. That's the first thing. I mean, because all all eyes are going to be on you and watching your every move and every word you yeah. say, written and verbal communication. And so, yep. you know, my my approach in going into it, and I do this anywhere I move for the first time, is I really got to understand, like culturally, where am mm-hmm. I? Right? I mean, mm-hmm. culturally, what are the norms of the organization? What are its current practices? ask a lot of questions about how we got here, you know, why do we do things the way we're doing it. And do and this is this is, may surprise you, but I will tell you I learn a lot by both asking a lot of questions and doing a lot more listening than telling people yeah. to do XYZ. XYZ. Because you'll right. be surprised. Right. Yeah. If you truly ask people sincere, genuine questions about what's going on, how they're doing, etc you'll get pretty candid answers. You'll get pretty candid answers. Yeah. And then it's then it's yep. up to you to decide after the 90 days, what do you want to do about it, right? Yeah. Then yeah. it's up to you, and that's when you show leadership. So after you've sort of listened, how you respond to what's been said, that's the true demonstration of leadership. Yep. You're absolutely right. Now, of course, this past year we've been in this pandemic. Um, yes. And being that you've been in operations, how has that affected? And I know hospitals have been affected big time. How has that affected the hospitals that you've been working with? Oh, it's been tough. It, and uh, listen, I'm not going to lie to you guys. It's been, uh, I mean, so, it, here's what's unfortunate it's so unfortunate that a lot of what occurred during the pandemic got completely politicized and it became very divisive um 
and mm-hmm. particularly when, when the disease itself is what we should have been fighting. I mean, there should have been disease and not fighting each other. We should have been fighting the disease. But I'll tell you, one of the, the worst parts of it that I saw that ha- happened to the healthcare industry um, was the fact that, I mean, we pretty much started shutting down. I mean, they, start, they stopped doing um, surgeries. We um, yeah. didn't allow yep. people to come yep. to the hospital. And, and, and it, you might think it's so simple, but we didn't even allow people to visit. And that had a big impact. Because think if you had a loved one in the hospital that you were used yeah. to coming and at least visiting, and now you can't even visit that loved one in the hospital, so you don't even know how things are going. Um, that was tough. And then many of our staff had to be responsible for taking care of both the emotional needs of our patients as well as their um, physical needs, and it was quite scary. I mean, there were people dying. I mean, that's not, a, that's not made up. There were actual people dying on our watch um, at a much higher level uh, than was happening uh, before. Uh, so that was hard. That was very hard to do. Um, but I will tell you, one of the lessons, again, going back to our um, days at the, the Citadel, um, is I – I guess I learned this combination of looking at some reading about military leaders, reading about military leaders mm-hmm. in general. Um, and Eisenhower, Eisenhower of all people had, um, and MacArthur uh, for that matter, I mean, had sort of this um, ability to sort of lead by walking around and sort of visiting the troops, visiting troops on the front line, right? Yep. Um, yep. And, and I – it was a little controversial, I'll admit to you boys, in the beginning. And don't think I'm too crazy because you know I'm crazy already. But I will tell you, all I had was I didn't have a gown. I didn't have, a ma- I didn't have a gloves. All I had was a simple mask. All I had was a simple mask. And I decided mm-hmm. I was not going to stay hunkered down in my office because I had a lot of people scared. To be honest with you, there were a lot of people scared working, saying, I don't know if I'm going to get sick. I don't want to bring home COVID to my families. And I said, I have to be out there now. And so right, I literally right. went rounding, rounding. I get in the car, and I went to a clinic. I went to a hospital. I went to a different nursing home. And I said, let me first give you truthful information about how many supplies we have, how many, how many resources that we have to help protect you. And then I would also ensure people that we're taking every possible step to make sure that they're going to stay safe. Um, and so when the country had as high as a rate of like 10 11% of people getting in, infected with COVID, mine was less than 1%, the number of people on my staff who were actually getting COVID your, your positive. Staff. So we're, right, my these, staff. These are the frontline workers, literally. The frontline right. workers. So I was able to get wow. them protected. Um, and then once they felt assured <laughs> that they were protected, then they were working overtime. You know, keeping yeah. the doors open yeah. and, and bringing people in. Um, and so I kept doing that over and over again for about six months. I was just getting in the car, going to a different clinic, going to the different hospital, answering questions, answering concerns. Um, and I, I think that also kind of helped us um, – what's the right word for it? I mean, get, get sort of the conviction, if you will, and the persistence yep. Yep. to sort of try to work through this. But people were exhausted. People were exhausted. I'm not gonna lie. The whole staff were exhausted about all the work they did to put this in there. I'm just so, curious. So what, what and, and I, go ahead, Eric. What, what, was you, what did you do that was different than what everybody else was doing to keep your staff safe? 
Well, I will tell you. So in Wisconsin, in Wisconsin, now the other states varies. I mean, you read the reports. I mean, New York had a hell yeah. of a time kind of going through this. California still dealing with it. Florida, Texas. I mean, there's some states having a very difficult time. Um, the state of Wisconsin, we all got together as a hospital association, and I'm very proud of everybody. I was, I okay, I'm a little biased. I think at the time I was um, the former chair. I was the immediate past chair, so I was the chair of the Wisconsin Hospital Association. Now I was the immediate past chair, but mm-hmm. everyone banded together. Everyone banded together, and they said we want to take these appropriate steps and protocols to keep our staff safe, and we don't want anybody to do something much different than the other because we all want to do this together, right? We all want to do this together. And when everyone did it almost the same way and took the necessary steps, um, then it wasn't a competition at that point, right, among us. Um, And then the staff got assurances that everybody was doing everything humanly possible to make sure that they had the supplies, they had the gowns, they had the mask, they had the gloves. And we had, we had businesses convert what they were doing and making before, and they were starting making a lot of these supplies that I'm talking about to make sure that the staff was going to be safe. And then hospitals got the first priority because they were right on the front line to get a lot of the mm-hmm. necessary supplies, and then we were using them, and then we started using them. Um, so I think mm-hmm. that's what helped us, Everett, in all honesty, and, and, and a lot of other businesses – and a lot of other organizations, they were unable to get all of the necessary supplies as timely as we were able to do it. And then their compliance of using it was a little bit different than ours, too. I mean, we made 100% of our staff. I don't care if you're a housekeeper. I don't care if you work in the kitchen. I don't care if you're a radiology tech or doctor. Everyone had to have the appropriate supplies and masks and gowns and gloves on to take care of other people. Yeah, yeah. Man, yep. that that's, uh, sounds like you guys led led the charge in doing what was right for your staff, so that other people could be could be uh, properly properly handled. And I, that's right. That, that seems and, and obvious sh- to me, but yeah. And Jack, and let me say this. And Jack, every place. No, and Jack, and I'll also say this, Jack. And this is what I'm very happy about too. I look back <laughs> over the last year. Mm-hmm. If you look at the numbers, yes, Wisconsin's smaller than some other states. Granted. But if you look at the numbers, um, we actually fared much better than almost most, if not every other state. Um, we had a small little blip from September to November, um, but we didn't have nearly um, the challenge and the difficulty as some of these other states did with their COVID numbers because we were able to take proactive steps in managing through it um, a little quicker. Again, aside from the politics involved, we did what was necessary for a short period of time um, um, to, to take the appropriate steps to reduce, you know, the number of people who ultimately um, died uh, in Wisconsin. And so, uh, yeah, yeah, I'm very happy about that, very proud about that. Wow. How are the vaccination numbers in, in Wisconsin right now? So top five, Jack, top five in the country. So wow. all the states in the country, we're okay. top five when it comes to the number of vaccines you have and wasting as little as possible and getting most of it Mm -hmm. in the arms of people we're top five uh, or what we were last week we're top five in the country when it comes to the number of vaccines given so we got a really good efficient process uh now in place i mean hey you know this uh, you're not going to be any good if you're just on the sidelines 
I mean, you gotta be you gotta be in the game. You gotta be in the you game here. The so game. you gotta be in the game. You gonna make any plays? So I mean, that that's one of the things I did too. So I will say, I told my folks as soon as we got vaccines, I said, whatever you thought your priority was, you know, because you got all, all businesses have a lot of priorities, right? I said, whatever yeah. you thought your priority was, right now, until I tell you otherwise, your focus is on vaccine. Like, that's what you need to focus on. I just need you coming up with plans on when you get the vaccine, how to store the vaccine properly, how to get the vaccine out and thawed properly, and then how do you get it in people's arms, and how do you reach people, right? And so um, before the end of May, and we're just one system, by the way. We're one system in a state mm-hmm. that has 5.2 million people. There's probably about mm-hmm. a, a million two vaccine, a million two vaccine that's been distributed We've done wow. about 200,000 by the end of May. We've done – or I'm sorry, by the end of April. By the end of April, we've done close to about 200,000 vaccines. So, I mean, we're a good 15% of the state yeah. overall in vaccines, and we're one system. We're just one system. Man. So we're pretty, and, and efficient. We, we, we're pretty efficient getting it out. That sounds like it. So, so the term herd immunity, when, yes. when does the vaccine – or the amount of people with the vaccine in their bodies, what, what percentage are, are we looking for so that things can be pretty, pretty normal? Where, where right. is that and when, when does that take place? So, um, okay, now I, I got to say this is just my own opinion, by the way. So any callers call mm-hmm. in, tweet in, and say, boy, that last speaker, he was crazy, foolish. This is my <laughs> own opinion. This is my own opinion. I don't I don't like the term herd immunity because we ain't cattle now. We ain't cattle. That's usually what it works with livestock. You start talking about that's you know, herd why, that's why I said the term herd immunity. I'm not I'm not saying when do we reach herd immunity. Using that term, when, when right. is it right. safe for the population? Okay. So I'm going to give you a very large range because it depends on who you ask. It all depends on who you ask. But I, I will tell you, I believe, and I think most scientists, they're not going to refute the range, but, mm-hmm. you know, you get anywhere between, you know, a good, a good 40% up to 75%. I mean, you get somewhere in that range. I mean, that's, again, this is my humble opinion. I think that's mm-hmm. a good enough range where, you know, you're one, one in every two people. You're going to be in a good enough range where – uh, you should be able to control for the spread of the vaccine as long as Jack, as long as Jack, then you sort of know mm-hmm. who's vaccinated or not. And if you have somebody who's not vaccinated, um, then you, well, if you're not vaccinated, you need to take precautions um, to protect right, yourself right. if you're not vaccinated. If you are vaccinated, um, then you've built yourself up enough immunity that even if somebody's sick, and you get sick, the vaccines are such where you're not going to experience, like, deathly symptoms, right? I mean, you may get sniffles, you may get a cough, but you're not going to very likely find yourself in the hospital, you know, on a ventilator. And and I think you'll like those chances. I mean, I like those chances. If I know one every two people, um, one person might not have it, I have it, but then I can protect myself against the other person, right? I mean, if I know that if they have the vaccine or not. I like my chances at that point. Yeah. 
Well, well, unfortunately, time is coming to an end. But one last question, real quick, yeah. before we go. Um, and definitely I wish I had more time with my boys. We're going to get you back. Don't worry. We'll get you back. But what advice would you give a young student athlete that has aspirations to play at the collegiate or, or the uh, professional level? Now, from college to pro, you're saying even playing in the college level? Just playing, either playing in the college level or playing, or, or that guy that wants to play professional. Both. Yeah, okay. Yeah, let me, I, I'm going to say this, and I'm going to be curious to see what you and Jack um, think about this. But I think regardless of whether you're at the college level or whether you're at the, in the pros, and you see the difference with people, right? Even with different, we all come with different athletic skill, different ability, um, even different sort of intellectual acumen, et cetera. But one thing for certain that I think gives you a chance to really compete is if you have a good, strong work ethic, right? I mean, think about it. How many people – we're not going to name any names now on this call, but think about how many people, whether it's in high school and college where where we both played, how many people who had talent, and they may have been smart, but they were lazy. They didn't really want to work, right? They didn't want to work hard mm-hmm. um, when they were on the field. And, and that showed, and that impacted their performance. That impacted their performance by and large. So, I mean, I think one of the things is <clears throat> have a good work ethic, number one. Um, if you're going to play any position, any sport, um, you know, almost treat it as – uh, not so much a job in a nine to five kind of way, but thinking about it as I have to do some work. I got to put effort into this for this to be successful. And then the other thing I would say for most sports, it's not all sports. It's not like golf because golf is sort of an individual sport. But in most sports um, that are team oriented, um, I would say another sort of differentiator, if you will, is if you sort of understand team sports and team dynamics and a lot of, I don't think a lot of teams understand this true strength by the by the advantage you have when you have a bond as a team right you're not fighting each other as a yep. team um, you, you truly sort of trust each other you tr- you trust that the man beside you is going to do his role his part and get the job done so you can be successful um, you know I, those are the two things I would give you it's like the value of a team and, and the friendships and the trust that can come from that and the fact that you can better perform if you do it collectively as a group, and then your own individual work ethic and what you bring to the table. Um, I think that would be the advice that I would give most people who's thinking about doing sports seriously. Hey, Bo, we definitely appreciate it, man. And, again, we'd definitely love to get you back on at some point, so we'll work on making that happen. Thank you. All right? Thank you. Hey, hey I know it's good. been some time. I still love you, brothers. I'm going to tell you this. I mean this honestly. Hey. I still love you, brothers. And I want to thank you both for what you've just done uh, for me in my life and starting me off on the right track with two good role models. Thank you. Thank you, man. You're a great, great teammate, great friend, despite being from Goose Creek. Other than that, perfect. <laughs> <laughs> That's coming from a guy from North Charleston, by the way. <laughs> That's right. It's great to be back in the Jeep. Hold on.
how's everybody doing? This is Everett Sands of West Foundation Sports Talk Show. Have my co-host here, Jack Douglas, and we have our right. guest, Miss Jerilyn Realty. Miss Jerilyn, how's everything going? I'm doing just great, Everett. How are you and Jack doing tonight? Yeah, yeah, outstanding. Well, I'm happy to be here. Happy to be here with you tonight. Hey, we're we're definitely uh, blessed to have you with us. Now, if you don't mind, tell us a little bit about yourself. I know you're currently living in uh, in Fayetteville, but just give us a little background on it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Well, you know, I I played college basketball, um, played professional softball, and raised uh, quite a prolific. Uh, athlete myself. My son played uh, Division One college football, um, and he was at ASU, and then uh, went from ASU, Arizona State, to Northern Arizona. Uh, and now he's serving as a Special Forces Green Beret. Traded in that helmet for a Green Beret. Uh, he's a bit of an adrenaline junkie, as I'm sure you guys can understand, having played college football as a at a high level. Um, but I've been a, a research scientist for many years and, you know, combining my love of sports and my love of, of science, particularly the study of the brain. And uh, for the past 12 years have been uh, very dedicated to studying the brains of elite military personnel and elite athletes. And it has been a fantastic uh, journey. Um, and we are now launching Athletes Brain, which is a company uh, which is designed to develop and uh, launch a platform to optimize brain function. So the Athletes Brain uh, is a prevention, performance, and recovery brain optimization company. Uh, and we're looking forward to making a huge in- impact in, in the health of athletes everywhere. Nice, nice. The um, so you you said prevention, performance, and what was the last? And re- recovery. So if you're talking about prevention, you're talking about. Um, you know, the optimization of the brain, of your cognitive function, uh, working on neuro longevity and neuro fitness to keep you stronger, sharper, longer, um, and and also to help you uh, function at uh, the highest level that you can, preventing the onset of some neurodegenerative disorders that are becoming all too prevalent in our country today uh, with the aging population, but also with the many athletes that have uh, played sports and suffered concussions and traumatic brain injury. So uh, trying to help people put themselves in the best position to minimize the effects of, uh, you know, Alzheimer's, dementia, uh, Parkinson's, uh, multiple sclerosis, so a lot of different uh, disorders that affect brain function. And then for performance, it is putting the athlete um, in the best position that we can to perform uh, at his or her top level. Uh, and we do that through a system we've created called NeuroFitness, which is 
a simultaneous whole body and whole brain workout. So it improves your physical performance level, but it also improves your cognitive function, enhancing mental and physical strength. Very interesting. Very interesting. Now, let me ask you this question. <clears throat> and yeah. Mental wellness um, is something that is probably not talked about enough in athletics. Why do you think that is? I agree. Uh, well, if you can just think about it, think about you guys. You played, right? And I played athletics myself, um, but my son as well. I mean, it's that, you know, attitude of, you know, the macho attitude and minimize. We're taught to minimize pain and we're taught to play through injuries where we're taught to, you know, push ourselves. And, you know, so I think that attitude, um, you know, and plus, you know, and it's something that we see very often in athletes where, there is a fear of, you know, losing their spot or, you know, uh, being replaced or losing playing time. So we tend not to complain. People tend not to complain about what's bothering them. They don't want to draw attention to them. They don't want to be seen as weak. I think that's really a, a huge problem. Uh, and there's a, um, you know, a stigma associated with mental health, not just in athletics, but certainly in society as ge- in, in general. Right. Right. Which I would imagine just seeing in society in general for the non-athlete is probably more prevalent in males because that's kind of what we're taught is not mm-hmm. the Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, play through the pain, right? You know, play through the pain. I can remember, uh, you know, my, I'm sure you guys played through pain. I'm, I'm sure you played through injuries. It's part of the game. And we're, we're you know, we're taught that. Um, guys especially are taught that, especially in a, a, a sport like football. Um, you know, right. anything else right. is a sign of weakness. Yeah, and, yeah. you know, you you end up competing, like you said before. You don't want to lose your spot because you have a team full of guys who can play just as well as you can. So you can't absolutely not play absolutely because of mm-hmm. an injury. You you have to play through right. it. And, right, it's um, extremely competitive, very competitive. Yeah, and, exactly. You know, you were trained. Exactly. You were trained as an athlete from a very young age. You think about it. You your psyche has been ingrained <laughs> and and you know so you're going to be extremely competitive you're going to you know push yourself to limits that maybe you you know an ordinary person wouldn't push themselves through and you know you're not going to allow mental weakness and that's what it's looked at unfortunately you're not going to right. allow mental right. weakness to stop you from playing the sport you love Right. So, so concussions. Um, you, you, you're on the front line of, of concussions. It sounds like, and uh, it, it, it is a it is an issue for football um, to the point where numbers sure. of high school players are slowly decreasing. Is there a way to play football while minimizing con- concussions and, and taking care of the participants? Well, first of all, um, you know. The brain is very complex, 
and every brain yeah. injury is different. Um, that's what people mm-hmm. need to understand. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, I believe that, that the best thing that they have done so far, I do not believe that you can eliminate concussions. It's, it's just physically impossible, um, you know, and I'm sure even since you played, you know, the sport has just gotten faster. Um, yeah. You know, yep. it's like getting into multiple car accidents. So that, you know, concussion being that type of traumatic brain injury caused by, you know, a bump, a blow, or jolt to the head. Um, and you don't even have to have direct contact with the head to, to cause, right. uh, you know, a, a concussion. You just need to, and you guys, again, are familiar with this, you get tackled in a certain way, causes your head and brain to move rapidly back and forth, and that sudden movement is what causes the brain to bounce around and twist in the skull, you know, creating the yeah. chemical changes yep. in the brain. So I do not think, you know, it's ever, we're ever going to see, um, you know, violent or physical aggressive sports like football, hockey, uh, where you're going to eliminate mm-hmm. concussion. They've made tremendous progress in developing better helmets. Um, you know, that's certainly something they've done with the rule changes, uh, trying to make the game yeah. safer. And I think that has had an impact for sure. But you're never going to, uh, you know, completely eliminate concussion. Mm-hmm. I, my, um, my, my son played for Dartmouth. Uh, there's the head coach there is a guy named Coach Buddy Tevens, and he was one of the first colleges to eliminate contact, person-to-person contact in all practices. Trying to minimize. Yeah, exactly. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Yeah, and I love Buddy Tevens. Love him. He is. He's revolutionary. He's very progressive. And and then talking with him, so he, I was sold right then that my son would play for him. Um, talking with him, right. he he had the the theory, and maybe it's a fact or or theory that when you have say in practice for the course of a few weeks. Offensive linemen have these sub-concussive impacts. You have multiple, mm-hmm. multiple, multiple, dozens of these sub-concussive impacts. Come mm-hmm. game time, it is easier for that player to get a concussion in the game as opposed to Absolutely. his players who don't have those sub-concussive impacts. Explain some of that. Right. Uh, some of that science. Yeah. For me. Yeah. Absolutely. So first of all, the signs of concussion can be subtle, right? So you may have a con- have suffered a concussion and not even be aware that you had a concussion because again the severity and lack thereof of symptoms does not mm-hmm. indicate the level of damage that was done to the brain. So you may be right. suffering concussions and not even be aware of it. And again, the force required to cause a concussion varies from person to person. Right. However, here's the danger. A history of previous concussions can make you more likely to suffer another concussion after just a relatively minor blow to the head. So, yes, going into practice and suffering, you know, having uh, all of these collisions, the brain is definitely Mm -hmm. more vulnerable to injury, but no doubt about it. Okay. Wow. Everett, I think we're doomed. I I think... (laughs) Every one of our practices were uh, full contact. 
no old bar. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> yep, yep. The only practice that wasn't live was stretch. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so, so yeah. Uh, help us out. And this is personal for me. So for someone like me who I, I've suffered three concussions at least that I know, diagnosed mm-hmm. concussions, but maybe mm-hmm. ten or a dozen more, at 50 mm-hmm. years old, healthy, physically healthy, mentally, how can I, what can I do right now to help, uh, you know, make, make, make longer my, my brain's ability to function normally? As long well, as that's great. Life. That's a great. That's a great question, and that's one of our areas uh, where pioneering neural longevity, and that's exactly mm-hmm. what you're talking about. You're talking about the duration over a lifetime of your mental yeah. processes. So you're talking about memory, right. judgment, critical thinking. Yeah. Um, yep. So what we incorporate in neural longevity um, is actually uh, neurofitness, which is that whole body and whole brain workout uh, that mm-hmm. will create new uh, neuronal pathways in the brain. It will encourage neuroplasticity and neurogenesis. Mm-hmm. Uh, in addition to that, something you can do immediately is functional nutrition. You can start eating okay. a brain he- a brain healthy diet which is, is going to help you substantially maintain the health and wellness of your brain. And by including things into your diet, uh, you know, um, that have omega-3 uh, oil in them, if you mm-hmm. take, you should definitely, everybody should be taking um, an omega-3 fish oil, um, yeah. fish oil yeah. supplement yeah. for your brain, without a doubt. But, yeah. you know, we have recommended, uh, we will be recommending um, a complete brain-healthy diet for people. And that's something you can do simply, and everybody should be doing it in actuality. Um, but that mm-hmm. is something you can do at home and do immediately. Um, our goal is to open up athletes' brain centers um, all around the country. And that will make it easy and accessible for athletes of all levels and ages to take advantage of the services that we offer, in addition to online that we will be offering them. But functional nutrition and neurofitness, that simultaneously, simultaneous whole body and whole brain workout. And if you can think about, uh, you know, the analogy I give is, and, and this is probably scary to some, some of us who, who didn't have an affinity in math or, or uh, in college, but it's like, you know, doing a full-blown uh, cardio uh, or CrossFit or high-impact training session and doing calculus at the same time. Um, it, it is amazing. <laughs> it is amazingly uh, effective. Uh, and improving not only yeah. your cognitive function but enhancing your physical strength as well. All right. Well, yeah, good yeah, thing you're well, talking to a, a computer science major and a math major. Um. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, well, that's great. Well, you guys will love neurofitness. I'll tell you what. When we open up our first athlete's brain center, you will get a personal invitation from me. And uh, I'll, okay. I'll have you come in, and you'll work out in the cyber sports lab and go through a neuro fitness session and uh, benefit from uh, all of the programs and services that we're going to offer athletes. Now, let me ask this question. Um, you talk about a functional nutrition diet for the brain. Besides mm-hmm. fish oil, 
omega-3 eating fish, what other type of things are, quote, unquote, brain food? Right. So antioxidants, um, you know, one of the most powerful substances that, that you can use for brain health are antioxidants. Uh, that would be one of uh, the examples. And you can get a an antioxidant um, uh, supplement to take. But as we talked about fish, you know, fatty fish, um, that, that should be at the top of your list. So even if you're taking an omega-3 supplement, um, you should be eating as much fish as possible. Fruit, blueberries. Blueberries are wonderful brain food. Uh, broccoli is a wonderful brain food. Uh, uh, if you cook uh, turmeric um, using that as a spice, that is wonderful. And I'm, I'm sure you guys love chocolate. So, you know, dark chocolate is wonderful. Nuts are wonderful. There are so many really delicious, really great foods that you can uh, incorporate into your diet. Um and, uh, you know, that can help with your memory and cognitive function. And the other thing is I would encourage you to consume meat sparingly. Um, you know, probably uh, as far as I'm concerned, I would recommend that you have uh, red meat make an appearance less than four times a week and really kind of supplement that with seafood. And um, But, you know, it's it's pretty easy to do that and infuse your diet with these brain-healthy foods. So let, let me ask you specifically. Uh, sorry, sorry, I'm taking over this. This is I, I, oh, that's okay. You guys are got really, you have to have me back on. I could talk forever about the brain. <laughs> I know. I know. Um, you mentioned you mentioned not not eating a lot of meat. Uh, explain a little yes, bit of the right. science around that. Right. I was a vegetarian okay. for two years. Um, fell off. Oh, the wagon, really? Good for you. No, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So obviously, yeah. So obviously, you know, there's great scientific evidence out there that what you eat can make a huge difference in your risk of cognitive decline mm-hmm. and dementia. Um, it has not, you know, I'm not talking about performance and recovery as much as I'm talking about, uh, prevention. Um, and eating certain foods like the ones I mentioned are going to slow brain aging down. And that's really what your, what your goal is. Um, so like you said, if you're a vegetarian, that's great because you want to definitely float up your on, uh, vegetables and eat, uh, cook Mm -hmm. with, uh, mostly olive oil. Um, and the, mm-hmm. the brain, the meat-free, um, consuming meat sparingly, and again, I recommend fewer than four times a week. Um, you can substitute uh, your lack of protein from eating your, you know, red meat, your carnivores out there, uh, by eating beans and lentils <laughs> and soybeans, which are packed with uh, protein and fiber, um, and, you know, also have great B vitamins, which are important for brain health. Um, but, right. you know... One of those things that, and again, it's been a scientific study, clinical studies and case studies that have been done comparing people who eat mostly red meat or eat uh, red meat five to seven times a day with people who eat brain-healthy foods that was able to have researchers determine that, hmm, 
okay, uh, that eating meat sparingly is actually going to uh, help sustain your neural longevity. Now, mm-hmm. Ms. Gerlin, where does chicken play into that? Chicken's great. I mean, it, chicken is great, but it, again, especially if you need to, uh, you know, have a lot of pro people don't realize that you should be having at least, you know, the average person should be having at least 80 grams of protein a day. And if you consider an egg is only somewhere around six, that's a lot of protein you need to eat a day. And, and as we age too, um, that's one of the things that, that is uh, detrimental to us is we don't get enough protein in our diet. So I encourage mm-hmm. people to definitely uh, use protein shakes. Chicken is great, um, you know, especially if you cook it in, in a way with, you know, like I mentioned before, using some of the heart-healthy uh, and brain-healthy oils like olive oil, uh, taking the skin off, uh, you know, obviously not preparing it in a way that we probably love to eat. Like I love fried chicken, but it's not it's not the healthiest for you. Um and then uh, also uh, the number one thing, though, is really by infusing some, some of those fatty fishes into your diet, like salmon, uh, is wonderful. Now, last, for me, the last uh, dietary question. Um, now, Jack Jack says he fell off the, the vegetarian bandwagon because his wife cooked some bacon. What is in that do? It's not easy being a vegetarian. You've heard it's not yeah. easy being green, right? Yeah. No. Oh, can I? Can I? Can I correct this? The real reason was that I, I found myself eating too much filler food, um, potato chips, junk, really junk carbs, and uh-huh. and I made the switch to add you know leaner meats back in, just just to to avoid that. Mm-hmm. Right, so you'll be more full and yes. um, less likely yes. to snack. Yes. Yeah, but you know, right. to that extent too, you know, there's a lot of uh, healthy snacks out there um, that you can incorporate. Nuts are great, and uh, you know, so th- you know, I think people educating themselves about nutrition and how it affects your whole body, not just your blood pressure, not just your cholesterol, but certainly your brain health. Um, you know, and there's nothing wrong. I know the vegetarians and vegans out there will probably not like this, but there's nothing wrong with eating meat. Um, there's absolutely nothing wrong to it with it. But the key, the key is to find a balance and make sure that your body is getting uh, the right nutrients that it needs to stay healthy and and perform at an optimum level. Uh, let me ask this question: Who would nutrition? Um, one of the things we just mentioned earlier was talking about athletes transition from being an athlete to just a normal mm-hmm. person. Um, right, right. Yeah, that that is a, a fascinating uh, area of focus for us. In our observance of athletes who played at a high level, you know, whether that's, you know, high school, college, or pro, 
we notice very similar problems when they're forced to stop playing, either by injury or because they fail to make the cut at the college or pro level or, or that they, it's retirement age. And we actually coined that disorder post-competitive stress disorder. Now, it, it sounds like post, post-traumatic stress disorder, um, but it differs from PTSD in that there are no intrusive memories or avoidance. On the contrary, uh, players are obsessed with the game, and there's an overwhelming sense of loss and incompleteness. Um, I think what happens also, I know what happens, is athletes feel like they've come to the end of their journey as an athlete, and there's a grief process that goes along with that. You know, if you think about it, you've spent your your childhood and your uh, a good part of the, your adult life playing this sport you love and when you try to interject yourself back into mainstream society these athletes develop feelings of loss and alienation they develop depression uh, moodiness there's even anger issues that generally become evident after a couple of months after they stop playing uh, and as they struggle to adjust to the reality that they're not going to play the game anymore so it's very real it's very common And the thing that we're concerned about is that if it's ignored or undetected, you know, many athletes may face increased mental health risks without getting the help they need. So that's one of the areas that I'm so happy that Athletes Brain is going to focus on to help athletes as they transition, you know, from their sport back into uh, society. No, I was actually – a couple of weeks ago, I had uh, a young man on that said, even though he was a star player, but it took him uh-huh. a year or so once he finished playing to adjust to not being a athlete anymore. Or Absolutely, and that is post-competitive stress disorder. And, you know, one of the things that we need to do, and I heard you guys talk about it tonight, which I think is great, is, you know, creating increasing awareness about mental health and athletes and removing the stigma surrounding mental health of athletes, you know, and, and we need to acknowledge that sports subject a person to a unique set of challenges and a unique set of circumstances that, um, that can make a person feel vulnerable to feelings of depression or anxiety. I think mental health is a very real issue uh, in sports today. And, again, you know, one of the areas that I feel athlete's brain is going to have a huge impact. Unfortunately, uh, I'm sure you heard of the young man that, that recently retired and back in South Carolina that, that killed the doctor and his family. Um, so, yes. again, did that lead to some other mental issues, or was it completely unrelated? You don't know, but you know. No, you 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 can't say you can't say for sure that it was completely unrelated. What and and you know when they they do the autopsy and see. Um, you know, if he uh, has a brain injury or CTE, has developed CTE, uh, uh, you know, then you can definitively say that his brain was adversely affected uh, by those brain injuries. And evidently, I know that he had suffered a few injuries while he was playing. But 
research actually proves that many survivors of head injuries suffer chronic personality changes, such as like increased impulsivity um, and a lack of insight and poor judgment. That's in the prefrontal cortex, and that's exactly what happens when you have people making poor decisions, uh, you know, not to the extent we hope of actually taking another person's life or their own life. But, um, you know, these changes are well recognized and likely to affect the ability to make decisions. So um, it, it, in my opinion, and again, this is my opinion, did it have, uh, you know, an impact on, on his behavior, on his actions? I, I believe so. That's definitely, uh, scary. definitely something that's scary. Now, let me ask it you. It is very scary. Mm-hmm. Um, just still just on the brain, but from a different aspect. I saw in one of your posts that you said the brain controls success and failure. Can you elaborate on that a little mm. bit? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, one of I hear you. You're asking um, uh, a lot of people. You know, if there was one factor um, that you could, you know, influence a, uh, an athlete to success in the college game or the pro level. Um, you know, I think confidence in sports and life might be the single biggest difference maker when it comes to success, and your mindset. Um, you know, uh, is certainly part of that picture. And so the brain, um, uh, you know, when you develop self-confidence, great things begin to happen, including better focus, uh, greater motivation, uh, resiliency. Um, and one of the things I like to point out with players, too, is they, they develop a shorter memory for past failures, which you know as an athlete is very, very important, and superior mental toughness. I mean, you know, and so I'm talking now on the behavioral side of the brain. So we approach the brain from two perspectives. One, behavioral, which I just talked about, which would be, you know, uh, self-confidence, um, which has an impact on performance. But then the other side of it is the organic side of the brain, the, the actual change and uh, chemical changes that exist in the brain. One of the greatest things that athletes can do um, to improve their performance is to get quality sleep. And the reason being is when you're sleeping, when your body is in homeostasis, which is the most relaxed state you can be, and, uh, you know, it's the balanced state of the body and the brain, uh, your, your brain is doing all the functions that it needs to do to perform at an optimum level the next day. I like to say that in your brain you have a house cleaner and a secretary. So that house cleaner or secretary is, you know, cleaning the brain. It's getting rid of toxins and getting rid of waste and tidying up the brain, if you will. The secretary is filing memories and, and organizing uh, uh, operationally, functionally, uh, you know, that side of your brain. So sleep uh, or lack thereof is by far the, the, the biggest influencer as far as I'm concerned 
on performance. And so uh, that becomes an issue in sports because guess what? Uh, one of the, my friends that had played at a higher level uh, in the NFL would always say they have a hard time coming down after the game. They have a hard time getting to sleep. Why is that? Because your adrenaline, because your endorphins, because your serotonin levels have increased. So relaxation and getting a good night's sleep is critical to performance. And, and again, that's one of the things that we incorporate. And so, Jack, that also, along with functional nutrition, how can you sustain neural longevity? Make sure you sleep well. So I'm going to sort of just, just thinking now as a football coach. Um, so we, we always said that Thursday night was the most important night of sleep. You know, of course, mm-hmm. Friday night the day before the game, but it was said that Thursday night was the most important night of sleep. Because uh, I guess adrenaline will, will get you through if you didn't get a lot of sleep on Friday. Is that right? Or, or how does that work? It will, but not without, not without negative impact. And, um, you know, your, your adrenaline is, your adrenaline level is, is not infinite. (laughs) So, you know, um, you can certainly do that. It's that height, you know, fight or flight. And this is why athletes, and that's kind of setting them up for failure because, you know, that's why athletes and elite military, which, which I also studied, suffer from adrenal burnout. And that is simply because, you know, they had no problem ramping up for the mission or they had no problem getting game day ready, but they all had problems ramping down from the game and ramping down from the mission. So I think my my, uh, suggestion is not just Thursday night, every night is the most important night Mm -hmm. for sleep. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Gotcha. Something okay. thing I did, but because uh, we used to play seven o'clock games on Saturday night, uh, and that, since then they moved them to six. But I could never get to sleep before two a.m. on a Friday night. I mean, on the Saturday night yeah. after a game. Uh huh. Sure. Um, and likewise, as an adult, I started racing, racing bicycles, and we had these what's mm-hmm. called Criterium races. And uh, that was on Wednesday night. We'll race a crit and could not go to sleep that night. Just could not mm-hmm. go to sleep. Now, right. now the crit is right. high speed. You, you're, you're going around a mile circuit, you know, 28 miles mm-hmm. an hour on your bicycle. And you talk about mm-hmm. a rush. It was a great rush. I loved it, but couldn't sleep that night at all. At all. So. Right, yeah, right. Adrenaline so, is a powerful drug. Yeah, yeah I mean. Let me tell you about, you know, adrenaline is great, and and our body produces adrenaline uh, for very important reasons. But, um, you know, when your adrenaline is is pumping, uh, like, you you know, it's game time, right? Your brain perceives that as a stress, as a real danger, okay? Because if you think about it, fight or flight, your body goes into – alert mode, you know, adrenaline is pumping, um, you get this boost of energy from the adrenaline rush. Um, and then what happens is when you come down from that, because that adrenaline rush is still sustaining itself, 
Um, but, you know, it, it'll leave you feeling restless, irritable, and sometimes just darn make it impossible to fall asleep. Miss Gerald, um, of course, time has, has sort of gotten away from us, but uh, but we're going to go to a quick break, and I definitely love to have you back on again sometime soon, so we can continue this brain conversation. Uh, because absolutely, I think guys, I yeah, I've actually really enjoyed it. Um, you can tell I'm really passionate about athletes' health and, and in particular brain health, and uh, I would be more than happy to come back. Uh, just let me know, and I'll be here. Thank you. Appreciate it. You're very good. All right. You all take care. Have a great night. All right. All right. Yes, Bye-bye. ma'am. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back in a few. Hold on.
Hey, how's everybody doing? This is Everett Sands with the West Foundation Sports Talk Show, and I have Mr. Travis Carswell here with me as our final guest of the hey. evening. Travis, how's everything going? It's going great, Everett. How's everything going in South Carolina? Everything's going well, man. Everything's going well. That was, uh, I- I'm sure you caught a little bit of it. That was a great conversation we were having with Ms. Geraldine, uh just talking yes, about the was. brain. Well, that is going Very to be important. a cutting edge deal when she gets that rolling. Oh yeah, yes it is. Um, something that we, I guess, when me and you were growing up, we didn't we didn't think about it. We was built different, but but exactly. today it's, it's it's a whole lot that's going on now with safety and you know these concussions and concussion protocols and you know from time to time. You know, I have them relapses. I said, man, I know I played football in some Rodell helmets, and now you look on there at Rodell, you don't even hear about a Rodell helmet anymore. They're still out there. They're still out there. They're still out there. There's still some some Rodell helmets out there. Okay. uh, But, you know, before we really start getting to you, here's here's something that that I'm thinking about. And then just thinking about, you know, the brain aspect of things. They cut spring practice from 20 practices to 15 practices. Right. Yet, most of the 1AA Division II started practice in January. And right. they're, they're still playing. So not only is it more than 15 practices, they probably had about 35, 40 practices and then and then playing eight games on the 1AA or the FBS or FCS level. Then right. in six weeks, they're going to start preparing for the next week. Um, I wonder what kind of impact is that going to have on these kids? I, that's a great question because, uh, you know, living here in Auburn, um, I have Tuskegee about 15, 15 miles from my home, so – I go down and consult those guys, and they've been in full pass, and they've been going and hitting it. Like you said, you know, it's it's going to be uh, very interesting to see how the NCAA goes about spring practices or even the uh, the summer workouts. When do you have the kids to come back in? I mean, um, it's going to be a delicate decision, but um, it's fair to say that a lot of this is going to be driven by, you know, the almighty dollar. So we, we just got to. Sit back and keep our fingers crossed and hope that uh, they they make decisions in the in the benefit of the health status of our student athletes. But hey, tell us a little bit about what you've been doing. Um, you know, start from beginning of college to to where you are now. Well, you know, I, I was I had the pleasure to be tutored by by yours truly, who's hosting this show, man. I mean, you did a Great job when I came down there in Charleston, the Citadel in '94. You, know, you took took me on the wings as a little brother, and uh, back then you and your wife was dating, so you know I got a chance to meet her, and you know, and you know we all was in that same circle because she went to UGA, and they knew my cousin Travis Jones, so it was like a little family circle there. Oh, we know Travis, and you know, so it was great being in that setting with people that. Um, was caring about you having well-being because the Citadel was a, a different uh, monster for me, per se, because I wasn't told the facts about the school by Coach Taft, you know. 
Uh, so it, it was very interesting to, to go through the, the plea period and the nod period and then, you know, meet guys that were, you know, athletes and in that military setting at that time, you know, we were all just one unit. We I got, and A lot of us are still close friends today because of the process that we went through. And I always tell people, I even have my stick on the truck and people go, oh, you went to the Citadel? Like, yeah, you know, I, we started talking and having a conversation. It's like a national bond. And about three years ago, I was over in Dubai and uh, just vacationing. And I had on a, some, a Citadel shirt and some shorts and just going out, just hanging out, lounging. A guy came up to me, and we started talking. And he was in Lima Company, 97, and all. We just started talking about people that we know and found out he played soccer at the Citadel. I said, wow. So it was just world-renowned presence of that, you know, fantastic college. And, and I just thank you guys that I was able to be a part you know, transitioning in my college career to be a part of, you know, great men such as yourself and uh, T-Real and uh, God, Reggie Moore, Derek Moore, you know, Forney and all those guys came around. So, you know, I was blessed to be amongst a lot of guys that, you know, as I look and keep up with people now, I see everybody's on Facebook. So that's kind of a way that we link in. And, um, you know, of course, I can't forget all the great coaches there from Coach Blamer and, Coach Kenny Carter and Simo and all those guys. So it, it was just a great time uh, to, you know, be in college and be involved with guys. So um, just just thank you, brother, for, for all that you've done for me. So just wanted to get that out there. Appreciate it, man. Appreciate it. Glad you would be, had a chance to be a part of it. Yes, sir. Uh, so what I'm doing now uh, – just kind of speedball everything up. I was a college coach uh, when I went to North Alabama. Um, I ended up coaching uh, there as a grad student in '99, and um, you know I was trying to be a journeyman as well. You know I had a couple of uh, tryouts for a arena league team, still having that burning desire to try to make it to the next level, and uh, play some arena football in Georgia and. All of a sudden, the light just went off like, hey, it's time to start, you know, planning your career, look for a job, hang up the cleats. And I got into coaching in North Alabama um, as a grad student. And North Alabama is one of the premier Division II programs at that time in the country. Um, three national championships. Wow, we had about four or five guys that played with me there that was drafted in an NFL at that time. So there were a ton of transfers and, and guys that were looking for that second chance. It was almost like the last chance you of the Division Two football. Everybody that was transferring, they wanted to go to North Alabama. So um, I got the opportunity to coach a lot of good kids. Uh, Janoris Jenkins was one of the kids I coached up there. Um, I mean, he came from Florida and got into a little trouble, got a chance to coach him, and um, enjoyed the time coaching on D2 level. And then all of a sudden I got an opportunity to be an offensive coordinator um, in South Alabama um, high school there and um, kind of started molding my career. I think we we linked back up at one of Travis's football camp in Macon. You know, I hadn't seen you in years since I left, and all of a sudden Travis was having his NFL Miami Dolphins camp in Macon, 
right there, you know, from our hometown, and all of us linked up. And I said, oh, man, Everett and uh, Shaky and everybody was there. So it was like kind of a small reunion. So at that point in the time, I was started to transition to coaching high school football. And uh, I stayed in high school football for about 10 years and got a call um, to go back to Division Two on the black college level at uh, Miles College, which is in Birmingham, Alabama. And it was my first HBCU experience, um, which was an eye-opener for myself, my wife, and kids, you know, moving from Georgia to Birmingham in a city that had a lot of history steeped in the civil rights movement and, and things of that nature was just a history lesson in itself. I mean, every day it was things that we were a part of that kind of brought it to light, you know, wow, this is what um, our ancestors went through and these are the things that they were faced with the Jim Crow laws and things of that nature. And I've always heard about, you know, Selma. And when I was coaching here, I got an opportunity to drive down to Selma and cross the Edmund Pettus Bridge and to visit the Civil Rights Museum and things of that nature. So when I started my coaching career at Miles, it was it brought everything to a 360. And that's when I realized, you know, this is where I belong. You know, coaching kids, developing kids, you know, putting them in an environment where they become positive role models. Um, we came in there in 2011. We took up a program that was basically the doorstep of the conference, which was the Southern um, Intercontinental Athletic Conference, SAIC. Um, we played in South Carolina against Benedict College a couple times, um, but most of our schools were in Alabama and um, Kentucky. So it was a lot of history with the schools that we play in that conference just based off of the civil rights movement and the CME churches and the AME churches. And I was like, man, it's a lot of history with these colleges just built around, you know, the movement and, and the church. And um, it, it was it was daunting, you know, because resources were limited. Um, we always had a saying, you know, you give us lemons, we're going to make lemonades. And that first year there, we won the conference championship, first time in school history. Um, and that kind of changed the, the landscape, and people started to recognize that, you know, winning cures all. Um, we increased and improved the enrollment. Uh, when I got there, the enrollment was a little bit under 2,200 students. When I left in 2015, they were well over 3,000. Um, so when you win and you're doing things the right way, you know, people take notice. We started getting, you know, sponsors to come in, and we put down the turf field. We was one of the first HBCUs on the D2 level to have a fully functional turf field and had all that laid out. And, you know, we thought we were big time, so <laughs> – yeah, we, we put together a great run of championships, um, my five years there. And I just decided at that point with the twins, you know, having boys, that I need to step away from, from coaching because, you know, as well as I do, it takes a lot of family time away from you just being a coach. And, um, we we just were raising the twins, and I noticed that I was missing out on a lot of the daddy time and things of that nature. So I decided to step away from coaching 
um, after the last championship in 2015. And I was at home kind of trying to figure out what was going to be the next career move. And I have my MBA, so my wife was like, well, you have a master's, you have an MBA. Let's look into, you know, look into human resources or something in business management. You know, let's use your degree. <laughs> so being a coach, I'm trying to put the game plan together. And uh, honestly, insurance was the last thing on my mind. Uh, I had a couple of interviews with some Fortune 500 companies as far as middle management. So I was trying to tweak and decide whether we were going to leave Birmingham, go to Atlanta where everything was booming in Atlanta. Wells Fargo had offered me a job. So um, I was basically committed to working for Wells Fargo in Atlanta. And Allstate just basically called me out of the blue, to be honest. And they gave me a pitch, and the lady told me, hey, you're what we're looking for. We need a coach who can – coach our agents, and I was given a territory um, in the state of Alabama and Georgia at that time, and um, I just took it with open arms. I, I, I was an opportunity to, to learn a new career. Um, I was able to move my family uh, back to Georgia. We was in Atlanta, and I ventured into, you know, the insurance world, and it was a lot of things that I had to learn, of course, uh, getting my license and property and casualty and going out to the home office in Chicago and learning the lay of the land. And, you know, when you get at that middle management, they don't take their time and coach you up on a lot of things. You're given a big three-ring binder, and it's like just feeding you with the fire hose. You know, here it is. You've got two weeks to get this information and take it back to Georgia and Alabama and take care of our agents that's out there. Uh, in these different areas. So um, I took it in stride, you know, being a competitor and, and want to win and want to win awards and win trips. And uh, my first year I took a struggling market that was a little bit under $32 million over to $75 million in a year, which was huge at that time for our region. So, um, and, and it was all coaching, to be honest with you. Um, it wasn't nothing that I did that was special except um, – put people in place to make the right decisions for their company and for their agency. And um, I, I learned a lot and a lot of the things that I was sharing were just football-related ideologies and things of, of building your team and um, giving people leadership roles and developing your subordinates and, and things of that nature. So, you know, stuff that we normally would do coaching kids. And I just took that same mentality to coach agents <laughs> and, it just caught on like wildfire. I wasn't the micromanager. I was a coach, and um, it took off. And I just, I, it was an amazing company to work for. I mean, uh, on the corporate side, and, and a lot of the information that I was getting in and giving to the agents, I started to think, well, man, if I'm training these guys to make, you know, all this income and build this generational wealth for their families. Why not do it for myself, you know? So, uh, I took a leap of faith in 2018. I told my corporate, told the corporate headquarters, hey, I'm going to venture out and open up my own agencies in Alabama and Georgia. And they, at first they kind of shunned upon it. They're like, no, you don't want to do it yet. But, you know, I said, no, this is the right time. And, you know, like coaching, timing is everything. 
Um, so I decided to just take a leap of faith and, and open up agency in Georgia and open up one in, um, here in Auburn. So that brings me up to speed, my friend. You know, now I'm into insurance with Allstate on my own agencies. Um, we're doing well. Um, it was a the great, one of the best moves I could have made family-wise because I now get a lot of time to to spend with my boys. And um, I think, you know, you have you know, your son, Trey, as I follow you guys a lot on Facebook. Trey has grown up. I remember when Trey was at football camp running around and you had him out there with the big boys. <laughs> and Yvette didn't want him out there with the boys. and You had him out there anyway. <laughs> so, but I've talked enough, man. You know, you, um, you opened the floor, so. What, what questions you have hey, for me? Well, well, first and foremost, you know, just going back, um, those camps working with Travis, that um, was the start of me thinking about doing something like that and thinking about starting the West Foundation. So I right. uh, owe oh, what we're doing and what we've grown to, and, and I want to grow more, but it started there. You know, right. being able to go out and just help those kids and, and being able just to be around them and to impact them, um, you know, I was like, well, hey, I want to do something like that too. And, right. Uh, and we started right. our first camp. And, uh, okay. And it's grown, and, and I'm looking forward to continue to grow. And, and cause what we want to do is increase our impact, and I think we have an opportunity right. to do that. A lot of these kids, you know, they haven't heard some of these things that, that we've talked about tonight. Right. They don't realize that football or basketball or baseball um, is the only way that they can have success. That if they right. do this going and learn that work ethic from the football field, as as you learned, and take it to the business world and, and, and the classroom that they can have more than they ever imagined. Right. Um, I totally agree. I want, them, I want them here early. I want them here when they're in the fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth grade. So, so right. they, they can go on and put that in their mind that, hey, I can be successful. But right. hey, let me get off that soap. So, yeah. so now you, exactly you transition. Right. From coaching to Allstate, yes. Um, but we just finished talking with Mr. Jalen Reardon, just talking about how um, the the athlete sort of has, uh, as she put it, um, what was the term that she used? Um, I can't even find the term that she used. Um, yeah, she has some terms about, that I was trying to write notes. She has some good stuff. I was like, man. It was post-competitive stress. Yeah, it was That's it. That's it. So did you experience anything like that going from coaching to the business? Yeah. Exactly. I mean, that term, um, and you broke up when you were saying, what was the other part? Post- Post-competitive stress disorder. Yes. All right. So that is something that I experienced my first week um, in Alabama because I was the only my my title at that time was field sales leader so I'm the only black in the whole state 
and I come into a meeting, there's nobody in there that looks like me. So I had my mindset from day one, I'm going to prove to these guys that I'm the right guy for the job, I know what I'm doing, and it, it, it gets your competitive juices flowing. You know, you get to want to compete, and, and it wasn't a, a power struggle per se. It was just competing and not wanting to fail and not wanting to let the the team down. And I think, I go back to it, I think that's why I had such a great rapport with all of my agents in the state is because here comes a young guy that's competitive and he's taking what he's learned through athletics and he's applying it to the business world as far as, you know, leadership and how do you build subordinates? How do you get your staff to buy in, you know, the, the all-in concept? Who's all-in on this team? And I was given some tough agents that were, you know, down south, good old boys. They've been with the company 10, 15 years. They had well over 10 to 15 million. What can you tell me? You're a young guy coming in. What can you tell me? But I saw those obstacles as stepping stones to help them realize that they had something greater in them. And I was always using an analogy. You know, I'm down in Alabama, so you know there's always the Auburn-Alabama rivalry, no matter what you do. And I had agents that if I wore something with Auburn, it was going to be a long day. But if I had agents that was Alabama roll tide all day, I would come in there and get a yell roll tide. Oh, Travis, come on in the office. What you got for me? And I would lay it out, you know, these are the new plans. This is what we need to do to increase your growth or, you know, in their case, profitability. Because at the end of the day, the agents don't care about the information. They just want to know, how can you help me grow, <laughs> you know? So that that term that she used was, was dead on. I mean, I, and like I said, I, I experienced it a lot, and it, it kept me going, to be honest. I, I, I got to where I had agents competing in other areas and they didn't even know they were competing. You know, I'll send out an email or flyer and say, Hey, this is a big bonus week. Who's going to kick the, you know, who's going to kick the game winning field goal. And I would get on conference calls and it'd be a band playing, you know, the fight song or whatever. And to me, that was a normal atmosphere for me. But for those guys, that was like being at a game. They were like, wow, you know, great meeting, man. You, you had us going, but, at the end of the day, they realized that they were actually changing the thought process. They were changing the culture they were in, and they were becoming competitive at the same time, increasing their profitability. So, um, you know, I didn't get the rest of the information she was sharing about that, but what are some other things that she shared with that that term? You know, one of the big things that she talked about with that is that a lot of athletes, as they step away, whether it's forced because of an injury or forced because they got cut or they retired, there's an overwhelming sense of loss. And that could lead, if it's not addressed, that could lead to mental health issues. Oh, yeah, and, uh, I agree. <laughs> yeah, she she's dead on. I, I mean, you know, when you're – and I could see the side where she says mental health because I got to where I couldn't lose, you know, that I was invincible to 
losing. And I, I got to where, you know, you can only bring people along so far, and then they reach a point where, hey, this is where I can go. And I had agents like that. I would really, I wouldn't say push, but I would be so competitive. Man, come on, you got you know, it, it. It got to where they were at the edge, like, hey, this is all I got, man. I'm giving you all I got. I said, it's the fourth quarter. And I would be pushing, 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 like deadlines and things of that nature. And I had to sit back because I, I had an experienced guy to tell me, say, hey, Travis, we understand where you're trying to go and, you know, what you're doing, but some people, you're trying to get them to the top 1%, and they're just not there. And I had to sit back and realize, like, man, I done got so – caught up in being an athlete and winning and competing, I, I didn't take the time to think about, you know, this may be as far as this guy can be developed, you know. Uh, and, and, you, you, and she's right. She's absolutely right. I, I had to take a break from it because, you know, I'm winning trips. Um, you know, I'm going all over the country and we're going on these all these things that all speak cinemas on, and that became the norm. And my wife will tell you, we got to a point where if it wasn't a five-star Marriott Western, we wouldn't stay there. You know, it was like because Allstate, Allstate had put us in that mode, and the kids were the same way. We we were down in Amelia Island, and we were at the hotel, and I said, Dad, we like this. You need to keep, you know, winning these trips or doing whatever you're doing with Allstate because they, they love the life, and it was the – and I think that's probably a part of that mental health side she was saying. You get so consumed with the competitiveness and winning, and you, you kind of divert over to something that, like, man, am I really getting this bad by wanting to win all the trips or put my family in a position where we're always going places on the expense of the company? And uh, it, it 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 did take a toll. I, I can be honest with you. Cause it was just like, Man, you need to slow down a little bit. Um, you know, this is this is getting to the point where you know you're 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 striving to do so much for a company, but you're losing your family at the same time. You're you know, it, it, you know the nice hotels were fine, but every month I was, hey, we're going here, we we're going here, let's go. And it took away from family time because, of course, when you go on these trips. They don't tell you half the time you are technically working. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, so, um, but God, that's that's definitely some some great information that she shared about the mental health side of it. Definitely, definitely. And then you know, just going back to what you were saying before, that, and again, just I'm a big John Maxwell proponent. Okay. And one of the things about is that you might be able to get a four to a seven. But right. that's about as far as they can go. Right, exactly. You get a seven to about an eight or a nine, that, that that two or three, he's got no chance of becoming an eight or a nine. Right, um, so, right. So there's some limits to where people can go. And so that, that goes into to what you were saying, where, hey, I keep pushing, but they're going as far as they can go. Right, and, and again, as you go and you have more experience, then you got a better feel for okay, where is this person now, and how far can they go? And of course, there are right. always some outliers. 
You're definitely right. I mean, and you, you you mentioned John Maxwell. Um, we actually had him here um, before before COVID, of course, two years ago, and um, he had that five levels of leadership. And man, he was talking about the lowest level of leadership, and you know, like you were saying, getting that person to the next level and things. And I think as former athletes that's been in position to play and start, we don't see no other position, <laughs> you know, and I think that's part of the, the mental issue as well because I have to take a step back coaching my boys now with, with travel baseball. Um, they're twins, so we have a batting cage in the backyard. We, you know, we do a, the garage. We got cages. We got the bats, you know. It's a lot that's invested in it. And I find myself getting caught up in pushing, pushing, pushing. Then I'm like, okay, they still eight year old, you know. They still have to grow up and be boys. So I kind of take back sometimes. But then again, you know, when we're practicing, I, I get back into that leadership mode of, you know, pushing them to do this. You know, now they're hitting, you know, shots and one bats. He's a switch hitter. He bats right and left handed. I mean, and I'm like, man, am I going too fast with them? But I think that's that competitive side of us that's just always wanting to do more and succeed at whatever we do. So uh, I find myself getting into that mode, and um, it's hard to get out of it. It's definitely hard to get out of it. With me, I, I sort of don't push it, but if they want to do it, let's go. Um, right. You know, so it's laid out there for them. Hey, if you want to go work on this, let's go. All right, come on. If you don't want to, right. I'm not going to. But what do, you, what do you draw the line at that, though? Where, where does that line come as, Are you waiting for the yes, or are you waiting, kind of preparing yourself for, well, okay, let's go in the house? Or are, you, are you kind of in between there? I, uh... It, it 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 probably changes, you know. It was kind of <laughs> like this morning. My son and I, my my thirteen year old, got up and we got us a, about a thirty forty minute workout in, and then got about fifteen minutes just doing some agility type stuff. Um, right. And it was more, hey, we're gonna do this, and and we're gonna do it again on Thursday. Uh, right. But I know him, you know, and I'm like, he wants to be good. Oh, he he just wants to do the things that it's going to take to to put him and separate himself from everybody else. Um, right. But again, I'm not gonna, there's some things I'm going to push the issue on, and some I'm going to say, okay, hey, if you want to do this, let's go. So sometimes right. it's kind of like, hey, let's not do something. And most right. of the time it's less. Sometimes it's nah, all right. So there, there is a fine line there. Um, because what you don't want to do is put yourself in a position where you push, 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 and now, you know, he gets to a point like, all right, I don't want to do it anymore. Right. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And I, I think and a lot of times, you know, being a business owner, um, I have staff, and my staff in Georgia is online, so we, we're always Zooming or they take or whatever. But the office here in Auburn we come in every day, you know, we've been doing this since COVID. So, you know, we follow all the protocols and, 
You know, we're writing business, helping customers. Um, you know, I do a financial side as well with um, the, uh, the wealth management side of it as far as annuities and mutual funds, things of that nature. So with the changing of the markets, I, I had customers that would come in and, you know, they'd be worried about, should I move my money here? Or should I do this? Should I roll it over here? And, it, you know, you, you help them, you help your customers and clients make that decision, but ultimately they make the final decision. You know, I'm there coaching, and you kind of push, like, okay, this is the right this is the right annuity to be in, but I can't just come out and tell them that. And then all of a sudden, you know, you kind of find yourself pushing them and nudging them. And you know, well, I need to take a step back. You know, this is their decision they have to make. I'm just here to coach them through the process to to make sure that they're managing their risk and things of that nature. So it, it is a fine line. I, I have to agree with you on that. It, it is a fine line, even with the, the business aspect of it. And, and, and Everett was and – was, What's so funny about this, things you share, it all correlates with athletics and the, the business side and the business world. I mean, it's it's amazing how all this stuff just kind of goes hand in hand um, because I know I tell people all the time, they come into my office and they see the Shaco, they see the um, parade deck, and they say, you went to that school? And I said with pride, I said, yeah, but I said, because that school shaped me. When we talk about the Citadel, I said, that school shaped me into who I am today from a leadership standpoint because of the rigors that they put on me academically and athletically and um, things of that nature. It, it kind of molded you. So it's like all of us that had that opportunity to go to that institution I think that a lot of us have those that same mindset, you know, when we're accomplishing a goal or we're doing something. It's, it's always kind of a, that leadership mode, but we don't want to push the threshold. So I, I try to hold back some time for my twins, but they are like tonight. They're out there now, and they're hitting the cage, and I'm here having a conversation with you. And my wife will sit in there. She'll watch TV. She won't go out there to kind of look over them because I tell them, you know, even there at eight, I say, we're not going to be looking over your shoulders. you got to want to become better baseball players on your own, not because daddy is saying it. And, um, you know, like I know, when you play playing travel ball, it's a lot of daddy ball out there and things of that nature. And I think my hardest part is being at home or practicing with them, getting them to understand you know, the difference in competing and being competitive. And then all of a sudden when we have a game, I'm calm. I don't say anything. I sit back and people say, man, they are so great. They're, you must work with them all the time. I was like, no, I don't. I said, I give them the option. Hey, this is what we're going to do. This is this is the task at hand. You know what to do. And it's always structured. We always have things that we're doing in the cage. So it's not like they're just – out there just going around in circles trying to figure out what to do. So um, I don't know if that's a mental problem, you know. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's crazy. Um, now, now as we as we get ready to wrap up, um, what advice would you give a young student athlete that has a dream of playing at the collegiate level and or professional? Wow. Wow. 
the advice I would give young athletes and, and coaches alike, you know, never stop learning. You can always learn from others. The, the, the knowledge out there is just so immense. Everything is is available now at your fingertips. Um, I have a, a mentoring group here that I work with, and um, we we do a lot as far as preparing these kids or seven middle school kids, seven, eight, and we have one ninth grader. Um, we, we talk to them about financial wealth, how to understand about money, and we tie it into sports. You know, we tell them, hey, you practice every day, whether it's football, baseball, or track. I say, you got to do the same thing with with your finances. You know, how are you going to balance? Do you know how to balance a checkbook? What things are you going to have, um, you know, set up in place for you? And um we talk to them on that level because once they get to the high school, we tell them as you're going through the process of being recruited, it is a business. You know, these coaches see that there's a talent and you have the product. You are the product. So in correlation with that, if you're the product, then that school has to have something that you need to get in return. I say, so it's a win-win situation. Um, And we actually – we actually talk and have those scenarios, and I bring in uh, players from Auburn, and I bring in guys from Tuskegee that have finished, and um, one guy that's an engineer major, um, he just finished a, an intern over at John Deere in Des Moines, Iowa, and John Deere paid this guy $60,000 just to intern for six months, and I mean, and he's a student athlete, so I tell them, you know, listen to these guys' story about, you know, honing your craft as an athlete, and as well as a student, um, because you know it's it's one of those things that as you learn and you uh, incorporate yourself in your co- career, trying to get to the next level, um, you you got to take the information that others have given you, you know, um, and be a sponge. I, I tell all our kids, be a sponge. Ask me a question. There's no such thing as a dumb question, um, because you get a lot of kids who don't have father figures and they don't have the structure that you and I may have had growing up. So you try to instill in them, you know, things that you've learned and characteristics and, you know, you let them know, hey, nobody's perfect. But if you're trying to get to that next level, these are the steps that you need to take. And um, uh, my cousin, Bud Dupree, uh, he just got traded to Tennessee Titans uh, a couple weeks ago. And uh, we have conversations and uh, we talk and I tell him, I said, man, just stay focused and humble. He was injured um, halfway through the season at Pittsburgh, so now he's in the mode of, you know, repair, building his knee, getting back into, you know, NFL NFL shape to be ready to play because he missed half the season. So we just try to stay focused. I tell him it's a never-ending grind. and it's, it's hard. You've seen the way things are going now. You know, a lot of these coaches now want kids that are developed. Um, it's not a whole lot of bringing them in and, you know, coaching them up. They're freshmen and juniors, sophomore year. Now they want kids that are ready-made. And the problem we have here in Alabama now, everybody wants to transfer to the school that's winning, you know, high school, on a high school level. Um, you know, yeah. So 
it's hard to combat all that. I, I have kids here. I say, look, dude, don't worry about transferring across town to the rival high school because they just hired a new coach, and he told you that you could go to a Power 5 school if you come play for him. I say, you know, you're fine where you're at. You just go in and work and outwork the work. And, you know, once we get to that level, of course, uh, academics play a critical role in that. Uh, once we get there and we maintain it, the test scores and GPA to get in, I said, then we'll, we'll we'll figure things out. But it's hard. I'm telling you, I, I don't know if y'all see a lot in South Carolina. Between Georgia and Alabama, these kids are just getting a lot of misinformation. And they're putting themselves in positions where they're not even staying at one high school an entire year. Here's the here's the thing. We get we got a we 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 got two minutes, so we're gonna okay. talk about this for about thirty. Mm-hmm. Other aspect is the transfer portal. So that's just not on the high school level. That's on the collegiate right. level. Like yeah, he doesn't get his for some reason, and now he can transfer without even having to talk to the coach. I mean, right. he could be in practice. And then be like, all right, cool, I'm transferring somewhere else, somewhere else. And don't have to talk to the coach at all. And yeah. it's, geez. Now, again, most of my guys are like, well, the coaches can leave. Okay, you talk about a grown man versus an 18, 19, 20. Right. I think it's just, it's, it's, That's it's, hard. It's, but, yeah. It is. It is. And, and unfortunately, some kids getting caught because they go to the transfer portal. And nobody picks them up. So now I left a exactly. full scholarship. Right. Now I have nothing. Right. And exactly. But hey, that's, we got that's, less. And that's the. Hello? Right, I'm sorry. Yep. Oh, I was, I was listening to what you were saying. Yeah. yeah. So, hey. But hey, man, I appreciate you joining us tonight, man. It's been great. Um, I appreciate everybody for, for joining us. And we will be back next Tuesday. So definitely be on the lookout, and uh, everybody have a great week, and we will see you later. Thank you.